April 27th, 2008. It's the Watt from Pedro Show.
Watt from Pedro Show. Got an interview with uh, Stephen Droz of the Flaming Lips coming right up. Oh, we started the show off with uh, Naima, take five, the fifth take, off of Giant Steps, uh, one of Stephen's uh, favorite Coltrane songs. That was John Coltrane. And then we heard from the Flaming Lips, riding to work in the year 2025. Now, this interview had to be done in two chunks because of uh, things up with Stephen there. We did it on the phone over, uh, he's in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And um, the first part was March 7, 2008, and second part, April 21st, 2008. And you can tell the first part because there's more of a buzz on the line. I figured it out better. But without any more ado... Here's Mr. Stephen Droz uh, talking to me over the phone from uh, where he lives to where I live here in Pedro. So what's the deal with your spiel? What are we, are we just, we're just rapping, huh? Yeah, we're just rapping. Well, I wanted to go, go back. Oh, you know, I just got, came back from a tour. Yeah. Yeah. So this is... So you play, you, and when I say rock, rock and roll mutant soldier, I mean, I really mean it because you... You're fucking living a life, man, always. <laughs> I got think to, a lot of guys, like, I'm one of those guys who are like, all right, you know, you got on tour for a while, and you come home, and you just shut down for a while. Do you do that ever? Do you ever just go home and do nothing for a while, or are you always playing shows and stuff? Well, I think SoCal is lucky that way. It's so spread out, and you can play a lot of gigs here. Yeah. Without, uh, what do they call it, saturating your draw. <laughs> I what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Plus, I got a lot of different acts I um, perform in, so it makes six right now, something like that. Yeah, and I'm then track. and and then now with the Pro Tools, I can do things that you never do gigs. You just record with people. Yeah, I love doing that. That's what I love to do. Yeah, see, so you're doing music even when you're not tour. Well, that's true. I mean, I'm always working on, you know, five different things. But, I mean, as far as going out and playing shows and, deal, you know, not dealing, but, you know, mingling with the people, with the, with the rock and roll, other rock and roll mutants out there, I don't really do that so much, you know, like you do. <laughs> well, I'm in my Pedro town, so I, I see them at the gigs and stuff, but most of my friends here, this is, you know, a working town, so most people don't play. There is a... A small punk scene now in Pedro, though, and uh, one of my drummers is from that. What do you mean punk scene? What do you mean by punk? Well, you know, um, God, they go on tours where they play people's houses. They don't even play clubs. So you mean that? Okay, well, I understand that. That's cool. I thought I didn't know if you meant like a some sort of idealized uh, retro. You know, this is the way it was in the late seventies, but not really. Or if you meant like, oh, people are just literally playing people's houses. Yeah, and they're young people, so for them it's kind of not retro, maybe. Somebody once told me the only thing new is you finding out about it. There you go, man. <laughs> so, I was kind of... Who said that? I, I don't know who said that. That's a really good... You should take credit for that. No, I can't. You know, Mike Watt, man, told me the... You know, I, I can be like, I'll be 80, you know, he told me the best quote ever. The only thing new is you finding out about it, which is, that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so for them, it's a kind of a, it's not a rehash, and uh, they're starting their own bands, and I was kind of unaware of it, I was torn so much, but then, uh, 
because there was never a punk scene in Pedro when the Minutemen was around. We were the only cats. You know? Well, sure, especially that early on. Yeah, I can't even imagine what that must have been like. So, yeah, most of the thing was up in Hollywood, which is 30 miles north. So, but like when, I, we, when we talk about those times, I, 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 I think you understand that, you know, you being in it and where I was at that at that same time were, you know, universes apart because... You know, in, say in 1979, I was I was 10, and I was playing on weekends at my dad's country band, playing drums in his country band. You know. Oh, but you were playing. I wanted to get to that. How did you get started in music? Well, I, you know, my dad's a musician. He he started playing uh, saxophone, and probably one of the very very first like I would call it rock and roll bands in 1955. This band called uh, Joey Long and the Wild Ones, and they were. You know, square as it was back then with, you know, doing a, they're probably, well, they were, they were doing, a, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis covers, stuff like that. But it was pretty radical, you know, for backwoods country towns in the south in 1955, you know. 56, that's that's where he started. And what was he, he playing? He was a musician all his life, you know. And uh, when uh, I was his, going, uh, I just, I, you know, I had my Kiss records and my Aerosmith, Led Zeppelin, whatever records when I was six, seven, eight, and he got me a little, just a, you know, actually, it was a, it was a very punk rock drum kit. It was just a bass drum, a snare drum, and a cymbal. And he's like, well, if you, if, you keep, if you play for a while and show that you're interested, I'll get you some more drums. And, you know, a couple years later, I started playing playing in his band because I was just so obsessed with it, you know. And what, what did he play? He played saxophone, clarinet, and trumpet. Oh, wow. Which is weird that he played these instruments in a country band, but at that time, they did, they did country, but they also did, like, a lot of, you know, you'd call it sort of half-baked, uh, light 70s rock, you know, stuff that I love, actually. Um, you know, polkas and things like that. Just, you know, just big VFW party music, you know, is a good time dance band, you know. So I, that's, you know, as you would say, got my chops playing that kind of stuff. So you know, it wasn't about your own art or being creative or anything. You were just, you were making a buck, you know, playing other people's music. And that's that's right. the reality I knew first, you know, a few years I played music, I didn't, never dawned on me until, you know, I was like 13 or 14, you could actually write your own songs and stuff, you know what I mean? So. But, but you were playing in your pop's band. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. What were they it's called? Terrible parenting, you know, here I am, like a <laughs> 10 year old kid out of these, because you played VFW halls on the other end of the spectrum, you know? <laughs> VFW halls, they sound like this 10 year old kid watching these, like, you know, middle-aged drunk people grope <laughs> each other at 2 o'clock in the morning, it's kind of weird. What was the band called? <laughs> well, it was his, his the band that sort of he was most known for was Vernon Drose and the Texas Brass. He was in that band, but the band that I joined playing was in this band called Rawhide. <laughs> <laughs> and you know it was cool because you know a lot of the music I love to this day, I, it was music that I heard playing that band. You know everything from the good you know sixties and seventies Waylon Jennings stuff to like the really hokey stuff like um, you know some Kenny Rogers late seventies stuff. Did he play drums? What's that? Did he play drums? No, no, he didn't play drums. So who no. taught you? You just self-learned? Yeah, yeah. He, you know, I, I, I guess it, it got to some point where I was like six, or maybe I was seven, and uh, I cut some... It sounds like something you'd hear. I don't know. It sounds like some made-up bullshit. But um, I cut some uh, branches off the... Or cut some sticks from a tree and would just be walking around the house beating on stuff. <laughs> That's when he got the idea, like, I think I should check into this, you know? And so it just went from there, and I just taught myself. You know. I heard Elvin Jones started banging on pots and pans to start. What's that? Elvin Jones. 
Well, Coltrane's drummer, he started by fucking on pots and pans and shit. I'm sure he did, man. <laughs> then his sister loaned him some money to get a real drum set. That's cool, man. Yeah. Have you ever yeah, seen this? I mean, it's one of those, it sounds like, a, you know, oh, yeah, it's a typical drummer story, but it is true. I, you know, I had my own homemade sticks, and I took, you know, my dad, he drove a beer truck for Miller at the time, and so I'd, you know, take the empty beer boxes he'd bring home and fashion them with some kind of drums, and I had some co- empty coffee cans. I had, like, a whole little kit there, you know, and that's when he's like, oh, I guess I should, I should get the little the, the kid a kit, you know, so... Got me the three drums, and there you go, I'm playing. Yeah. But I was... Yep. Man, I lost you there. Yeah, the line went dead. Really? Yeah. I thought maybe you got so bored you just hung up. No, fucking like, way. Man, I don't want to know this. No, I'm way into it. <laughs> so how long do you play for your pop? Well, that kind of went back and forth. I, uh, I started playing when I was 10, and then... You know, we moved around a lot just because, um, I mean, you were a military kid, but my dad yeah. just changed jobs a lot for no for no real good reason. But So we moved around a lot. But I would say I played, played drums in his band until I was about 13. And then I started, I was playing in other, like, country and, like, half-assed top 40 cover bands around town for a couple of years. And then when I played with him next, I was about 16. I was playing piano by that time. I was playing piano, piano in a country band, and he joined that band. So Wow, how did you get on piano? I just, I just got into it, you know, when I was about 12, I, I don't know, I just, I really, I don't know, we had this cheap Yamaha organ at the house, and I've been looking at it for a couple of years, and one day I fired it up and said, man, what, what's this all about, I had a little cheap drum machine on it, and, and uh, my dad still has it at his house, I still love that thing, but I don't know, I just, I don't know, I just suddenly I just learned how, to, I wanted to see if I could figure out how some of that stuff worked, you know, like, man, what those... It was chords and all that kind of stuff. What are they doing? What is that? You know, how, how does that work? And so, you know, I learned like "Let It Be" by the Beatles. You know, a couple of Journey songs, stuff like that. It just on your own. On my own, yeah. I never took any lessons. You know. Okay, were you play, ever playing with cats your own age yet? Well, I was in a couple of garage bands. Yeah, one was called. Uh, there was one. <laughs> actually, this is this is a you would love this story. The very first like garage band I was ever in was a band called Shadow Master. <laughs> Shadow Master, and the leader of the band was this black guy named Andrew, and he was like 21. This is when I was like 10 years old. Damn. And he drove like a, a Ford Econoline white, and he painted it with black paint, real cheap, like big, like Soul Brothers 70s, like uh, calligraphy Shadow Master. <laughs> And he sang and played. He played a Fender Precision bass, and then he had this uh, this Mexican guy Ray who lived down right down the street from me. He was like 18, real flashy guitar player. He played like a 335, and he could play like Van Halen licks and stuff like that. And uh, that was the first band I was actually ever in. It was called Shadow Master. A power trio. Power, we were a power trio. We played. Remember playing War Pigs a lot. We had that in down pretty Ten long. years old. Yeah, I've loved Black Sabbath since I was probably six or seven, you know, since I first oh, man. started listening to music. I've always been a Sabbath fan, but we played, you know, Back in Black, ACDC, stuff like that, you know. But, the, you know, this one guy, he could play Eruption. And, but um, the one cool story about Shadowmaster was, and this is before, right, like a year or so before MTV, Andrew, the, the bass player guy, had taken War Pigs off Paranoid by Black Sabbath and synced it up to all this World War II footage he had and it was on beta tape and he had this beta VCR player thing and uh, he would, this is before you know videos were actually something you could watch on TV on a regular basis and 
all his friends that come over and they all smoke a bunch of pot. I didn't. I was just standing there and watching these like older kids smoke pot. They he put on this war pig video and everyone trip out on it. <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> That's one of my fond memories about Shadowmaster. So, so you know, I, I, you know, when I was playing, I was playing professionally with my dad, but I was also playing these garage bands with my brothers and his friends. You know, or and your drummer. Both of my brothers had friends who were all like stoner guys that played guitars. You know, equipment they stole from somebody. So. So, when did it dawn on you about writing songs when you got into the piano? Yeah, I would say that was when I first started to get the inkling of like, well, you know, it's some, someone's got to make up something somehow. And, and uh, But still, it was just something that was in the back of my mind. I think my my whole trip was just trying to be like a good musician guy, you know. Did you take uh, music in school? I did. I joined band in um, eighth grade because there was nothing else to do for that, like, extracurricular choices, you know? Yeah. And um, I just taught myself how to read, um, like, no, you know, music notation, just ma- mainly percussion. I'm still a terrible reader. I would never choose to, uh, I'd rather, I could more easily hear a piece of music, you know, even if it's, like, Mahler or something, I could hear it easily, and I could read it and figure it out, so. Um, it's just more natural to me, you know? So you're, like, in the marching band? I was in the marching band, and... Eighth grade, I played the snare drum. Then ninth grade, I moved to high school, and I, I was still a little short, short kid. I hadn't grown at all, and I had to carry this big muster marching uh, xylophone. It was brutal. Man. <laughs> a xylophone. Yeah, I played xylophone, and that's why the the tri toms, and I moved into snare drum again. So Damn. I liked. I actually liked marching band quite a bit. I thought it was kind of fun because it seemed kind of just powerful sometimes. You know, if you if you're right in the right spot and you're playing the right piece of music, like, man, this is kind of powerful. It's fun, you know. What was the first song you wrote? The first song I wrote? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Man, I don't know. There's so many, like, you know. You're, for you, like, the first song you wrote probably ended up on a record. It was, like, some definitive moment in your life. I only one wrote one song as a teenager. Do you remember it? Yeah, it was called Mr. Bass, King of Outer Space. It was called what? <laughs> Mr. Bass, King of Outer Space. <laughs> and it was about the bass player doing this big old solo that blew everyone off the stage. Did you ever record that? No, it's before punk. I know. What, what's wrong with you? That should be recorded. <laughs> you got to get together with like some of the stoner California guys, you know, like John Frusciani or something, you know. <laughs> get together with them like Stephen Perkins record that man make it make it a reality man. come on man I wonder how it went I just remember some of the words you know it was about you know it was obviously a big compensation for the inferiority complex being put on base that's fucking funny man but that's the only song I wrote in my whole teen years yeah fucked up it was a weird time in the 70s people didn't write songs in our yeah. town no one well, that's because I remember, you know, when I, when I first started to get to know you on that Chili Peppers tour back in 2003, you know, because I always been your, would been your ear about that. What was it like, you know? Your first concert was T-Rex, right? Yep. You know, for me, I can't imagine something like that because that, that music, you know, is so lionized and, so, you know, there's such a reverence for it, from myself included, you know. Whereas my first concert, you know, I saw Yes, you know, the 1995 <laughs> tour. You know, it's not nearly as cool. You know? Now, it meant a lot to me, and it still does, but it's not nearly as cool as seeing T-Rex as your first concert, you know. But I try to imagine that you say that now. People weren't writing songs, you know. No. Wayne's tried to explain that to me. Like, in the 70s, 
there was no like, hey, I could be that guy, you know. There was just, there was Jimmy Page up on the stage, and I'll I'll never do something like that, you know. Yeah, it was a weird time, and then these guys who didn't even know how to play were writing their own songs, and that's what really attracted us to the punk movement. We couldn't yeah. believe they had the nerve. Well, the whole idea of playing as a means of expression and not just trying to copy the song off a record. You know, that was a big step. Yeah, yeah it, the other way was more like building models or something. <laughs> kind of looks like the real thing. <laughs> but it was nothing about your own thoughts or feelings or... <laughs> You know, it, I understand that. Yeah, I think for me it's like because I started out just copying everybody else because for me it was on how 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 you're supposed to do it in the first place. Yeah. Which for me that's just that was my trip. You know, for you guys it was like like you said you thought oh you just tune your strings to whatever feels good. <laughs> yeah. We, you didn't even know there were some rules you're supposed to adhere to. No. <laughs> Which is <laughs> we thought if you played down on the like corner, you know what the rules were, and then try to figure out what the rules were and learn them, and then like, oh, then you can work outside these rules, you know. But yeah, that's how you're supposed to do it, huh? Not, not necessarily. We thought it was a personal thing. I like them loose. I like them tight. We didn't equate it with pitch. Or like, oh, you seem like the kind of guy who would have loose strings. Yeah. You, know, you seem to love tight. So. <laughs> to me. We thought if you played down on the corner and it sounded right, then you were in tune. We didn't know you're down on the corner had to be like the other guys down on the corner. Yeah, which it's almost like my oldest brother. You know, he couldn't. You know, he, I was <clears throat> waiting to kiss from like the age of six to about nine. You know. And I, you know, he was—he had an acoustic guitar. And he could play a couple of chords and play a couple of little riffs here and there. And he couldn't figure out the riff for Black Diamond. And he used to razz him about it. I'm like, what the hell? Why can't you play Black Diamond? You know? And he told me because the the, kid, the guys in Kiss had special machines on their guitar that allowed them to play Black Diamond. <laughs> I so saw a kid. You're like, okay, I guess that's just the way it is. Yeah, we thought uh, fuzz tones and all those sounds on the records were some studio tricks. We didn't know about uh, pedals. We did, could not get that sound with well, those little how amps. Would you know unless yeah. told you or you saw it like in a pawn shop or some music store or something. You know? Didn't know. And I, I remember when we f saw Fuzz Face, those round things. Yeah. And it was like, sound. It was so you know trippy. I just got a couple of weeks ago. I'm really, man, you know, because I'm, I'm always on the lookout for the, the best fuzz pedal of all time. I don't know if you've ever come across a fuzz right by, you know, most right made uh, stomp boxes in the late 60s. So most right has this pedal called the fuzz right. Supposedly like Jefferson Airplane. I've even read like the Stooges used them on the second record. You yeah. should ask those guys if they ever used the fuzz right by most right because I got this thing. It was called the fuzz right? It's called the fuzz right by most right. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, ask, okay. ask Ashton if he knows anything about it. I will it. tomorrow. What's that? I will tomorrow. Because I know he used a fuzz face. Man, it's fucking vicious. It's like it sounds like it could be something off Funhouse, the guitar solo on uh, 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 down the street. Oh, it has that kind of sound to it. You should ask him if it's that pedal because it's man, it's just a wicked fuzz pedal. I've I've bought at least twenty like vintage of the old style guys in the last two years, and this is the most badass one I've come across. It's it's really something special. Wow, you know, a lot of the kids now, a young band, you'll see they'll have all kinds of pedals. Yeah. 
it's a real common thing now. Which is cool. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Music. Watch fucking Jay Mascus, man. He's just like a master of all that shit. And now Nels Klein, he does a dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I try to keep it simple live, but. I'm yeah, I don't use any of that stuff. Extensive pedal collection at this point, but. I don't know, Sue. Let me ask, what was the first, like, Stompbox you ever bought? <laughs> man, I don't know. Um. Because I didn't really... It seemed to, like, cut the low end on the bass using those things. I think it was one of them Bootsy Trips envelope filters. Really? I can't... Yeah, cute. I trouble, like, imagine you with, like, a, like I, a Mutron... Like yeah. Mutron uh, 3 or something, yeah. Yeah, and I tried it. I didn't really use it for gigs. Yeah, it's like a too disco for you guys. You know? <laughs> it's boy, boy, boy. You know, Steve so after with a fucking Telecaster singing his heart on you over there doing. <laughs> yeah, so I didn't really use them with. I tried with this uh, sickness opera a few years ago. I tried using effects because I had a. It was an organ bass drum. You, you saw us the second. Well, yeah, we'll with you guys. Yeah, that's right. And so I thought, well, Pete could hold the low end down with the left hand because it can go down to C. It can even go lower than me. So. Yeah, yeah. So that's when I tried it. But then, man, it, like hitting them at the right time and carrying them around. And I just, after that opera, I stopped doing <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I understand, I disagree, I, you know, I disagree with you, but I understand your point. It's like it's somewhere else. It's another cerebral cerebral element that you have to be in control of, you know what I mean? Yeah, too hard for what, not for most people. Like what, you're, what you're wanting to do is just like, you want to get just the pure raw emotion and not even be thinking about what you're doing. That's that's really hard to achieve anyway in the best of circumstances. So, yeah. how much pedals you got to be in control of just makes it even worse. You know? I, I used to see Michael play like Wow Wow and stuff on his bass. And, yeah. Oh yeah, let's get to that. When did you meet them? Because you can't remember your first song you wrote, but I can't. You started know. writing songs and you're you're playing piano. But when do you meet these uh, Michael and Wayne? Yeah, that's, see, that's, you know, we have to talk for a long time. Because <laughs> I've met those guys. That's why I, I sort of already got on the path of hoping to meet some rock and roll mutants that were making their own weird noise or whatever, you know. And I had, I discovered, you know, Sonic Youth and all the bands that made that <clears throat> big impact on me when I was like 19 and 20. And the, you know the flaming lips from one of those bands. I didn't really like their early stuff that much, but I heard you know that record in Appreciate Animals came out, and that was the one that fucking bent my ear for sure. I was like, damn, what the fuck are these guys doing? You know? Oh, so you didn't know them in school? No, no, no. I mean, those guys are a lot older than me. Wayne is see, eight years older than me. Michael's six years older. So I just happened to move to Norman, Oklahoma, with another band that I joined in Austin, and uh, I moved to Norman and. And then this band wasn't working out that I was in, so I was just washing dishes at this place in town and didn't really know what I was going to do. And um, it just I just stand at this guy's house who had like an eight track where the where the Lips had done some demos for that Hit to Death record. And I just happened to meet Wayne randomly one day. We just started talking, and yeah, I didn't tell him that I, you know love love the Flaming Lips and all that kind of stuff. I just was just sitting there talking to him. And he just seemed like one of my older brothers or something. He seemed real cool. That was cool, man. And then I <clears throat> met him like two weeks later again at the same house, and Nathan, their drummer for the previous two records, had just quit. And between the time he'd met me before and this this next time, he'd seen the videotape of me playing with this band that I'd been in. And he just, it 
came to our drummer just quit. He wanted to come to Oklahoma City and set up some drums with us and just play through some stuff. That was September of 91. Wow. And then I was just in the band, and that's that was, what, 16 years ago or something? 17 years ago, whatever it is. So were you touring with that Texas band? Uh, we did, like, two little tours, yeah. It was a band called Janet's 18. And these guys, you know, these guys, you know, I mean, you had been in the scene for so long anyway, but for me at that time, I was just trying to find anybody who wasn't playing metal or some bullshit, you know? Yeah. Which to me was like, man, I can't, that's one that I cannot deal with, you know? But, um, these guys were all younger than me, so, like, probably for the first time in my life, I was actually playing with a bunch of guys younger than me, so these guys were all, like, 19 and 20 writing their own songs and, you know, doing, like, a kind of a, Nirvana, Lips, Dinosaur Jr. kind of trip, you know, which is actually pretty hip for a bunch of guys who were 19 and 20, you know, yeah. so, and they had a tour of the Midwest book, and they just, they really wanted to do, try to do something, you know, so, I was into that, so I ended up joining that band, and that band was going nowhere, and so I ended up in Norman, Oklahoma, where they were from, and that's how that all happened, you know. But that was like the first touring band, Janice 18. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And your playing, drummer? You know, not literally playing people's houses, but, you know, close enough. You know, you play to five people at the fucking, <laughs> I think, you know, Gabe's Oasis in Iowa City or something. <laughs> you know that place, don't you? I've played there many times. That place is uh, <laughs> What's the place in Madison? It's called um, Madison, Wisconsin. Madison, I've played a bunch of times. Uh, O.K.'s Corral. O.K.'s Corral, yeah. right. Tom Lane. So, see, when I played there in 1990, it was a new thing. You'd probably already played there like 25 times a year. <laughs> Yeah, it ended up burning down. I heard about that. Yeah. yeah. So there's a new OKs now. It's not as good as the old one. I'm sure it's not. Yeah. It's kind of like a sports hey, bar. Hey, I'm sorry to do this too, but i got to put my boy down to bed, man. Can we continue this later or something? <laughs> yeah, of course. This is fun, though. Why don't we do this like when we were just sitting around drinking Jim Bean? <laughs> because I'm in Pedro. I, mean, I guess I could get a bottle. <laughs> you could have I'm gonna work on that. Yeah, it was funny when you came to see us with Sonic Youth up, up in Detroit. Oh man! And the only person I've ever seen grab a bottle of whiskey like that is myself. <laughs> Where you just grab it, you play like four gloves. Man, I'm fucking nervous about the Stooges, man. Fuck. <laughs> you remember that? Yeah. That, like, Calm down, man. <laughs> there was a lot of pressure on me. That was a big relief valve. Yeah, you were, man. You were naturally jacked up for sure. <laughs> I just spent eight days with them. Three of them with Iggy alone. Let me add, okay, I gotta go, but I want to add before we part ways for now, at least we continue this conversation. But um, have you got to a point with him where where you're just comfortable hanging out with him, or do you still feel like, is there like a worship thing happening? It's Watt calling you, Steve. God damn it, Watt. What's going on? <laughs> Dude, I got some fucking hell news in a little bit. When we did our last spiel, the battery in my purse, lap purse, um, shorted out, and I lost that file. Man, you gotta get that shit together. Well, Apple gave me a new battery. It was just a fucked up one. They're made of many cells, and just one cell goes out... 
but but what we were talking about was um, you getting into the band with the lip people and moving from from a drummer to Oklahoma. To, oh, all, yeah, and moving from drummer to. Oh yeah, actually that yeah, you moving from Texas to Oklahoma. Yeah, and then getting in the band and evolve whatever, evolving all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right, yeah, right. Well, shit. So just pick up on that, and you can you know paraphrase it, chop it up into little tininess Damn, as much as you right. want. Well, I thought we were going to talk about something else. Though. We are, but just because I lost that file, I've never had a problem with the Mac before, but it was a bad battery. I got you. Right. So you know, I got dealt the hand. Well, you got to forgive me a little bit because. I'm pretty, pretty exhausted, pretty tired, and I just felt bad that I've been, you know, haven't, hadn't responded to you on MySpace and all that. <laughs> well, that being the big gatekeeper of all connects should probably be kind of weird. Yeah. But if you want to do this tomorrow, I could do it tomorrow. No, no, let's do it tonight. All right. Yeah, I'm tired and stuff, but yeah, shit, we'll just. Uh, what what happened? You were like discussing how Cliff came in as a, a helper man, and uh, you were still playing on the record, but for the gigs. Yeah, yeah we more. were talking about all that stuff. Yeah. Well, I think we we were backtracking to when I actually joined the band. You know, when um, you were playing with these Dallas cats. Yeah, these guys from Austin and Dallas. That was this band called Janus Eighteen. I was playing with them, and um, they're you know we were living in Austin. And things just weren't working out for them, for us, whatever. So they moved back to Oklahoma, so I moved with them. And I um, uh, moved back here and just kind of hanging out. And that same time, uh, you know, Nathan, the drummer for the Flaming Lips, quit that same time. Right. And so uh, uh, Wayne, you know, Wayne came over to where I was living um, because it was a, the guy I was living with had a little studio there. They'd done some recording. <clears throat> the Lips had done some recording there, so um, yeah, he came over and had seen a video of me playing drums with those guys. That's all he saw was a video. He, didn't, he hadn't seen you play with Janice eighteen. Right, exactly. Yeah, he just saw this video, and and um, we just started talking, and you know, within a couple of minutes, it was just uh, it was just very comfortable. He seemed like an older brother or something, you know. Right. I mean, a Did lot you of guys I meet playing in bands and stuff just seem you know, like older brothers or whatever you know like you you're just to me you're like an older brother that that uh, I wish you know my older brothers would have taken your path or something you know <laughs> well, you know what I mean yeah that's very kind of you, just, you know, playing Did music and doing your own thing and stuff like that and so Wayne kind of to me was that sort of guy and uh, of course I was a, I was a big Lips fan at, at that point um, so you never knew him as Luigi. What's that? You never knew him as Luigi. Yeah, that was way before my time. Okay. That was in his uh, fast food service industry. Because right. so. you know you know about us when we first met him and conked at his pad. Or maybe the first couple of years we knew him, we thought that was his name. He told me that and you told me that too. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Yeah. And we knew him as an artist. He had all this artwork. We didn't know he had a band. That's so funny, man. Yeah. I know, because you know, the thing about Wayne is he's always been making his own deal, you know? Yeah. Since he was, I think probably since he was like 10 years old, he's always been doing his own kind of trip, you know? Which is very admirable. Yeah. Um, just uh, last, uh, sorry, Saturday night, we actually watched the Christmas on Mars movie. 
we watched it at his house, but in this big circus tent that he sort of created <laughs> to play at the festivals, like at Sasquatch, it's going to show that big uh, music festival in Washington yeah. called Sasquatch. It's going to show there, and it's going to have this big circus tent that basically Wayne has sort of set up and created with the five, you know, surround sound PA system and stuff like that, so... But, um, yeah, going back to the story. Yeah. You know, he came over, we started talking, and within, a, you know, a couple of minutes I felt, I don't know, it's a very comfortable feeling like talking to my brother or you know, someone in my family, because our, our families are kind of similar, too, in our upbringing and uh, how how big our families are and stuff. And his pop did music? No, his pop didn't do music, no. His, wow. his pop, um, just, uh, just a hard-working, um, you know, um, I don't know, just a hard scrabble guy from Pennsylvania. That's where they were from originally, was from uh, Pittsburgh. But um, I don't know, just you know, his he there was six kids in his family, five kids in my family. Oh yeah, big one. You know, uh, half Irish, half uh, Polish or Slavic. Cause, uh, Wayne's mom is Polish. My my dad obviously he's Czech. You know, and my mom is Irish, and his dad was Irish. So oh yeah, Celtic Slav. Yeah. We got a lot of Slavs in Pedro. What's that? We got a lot of Slavs in Pedro. There you go, yeah. Croatia. There you go, yeah. So, um, you know, so we had, you know, I don't know, just kind of similar. The first time I went to his dad, to his folks' house, like, you know, I felt like I was, like, hanging out with cousins or something. It was very comfortable. But, yeah, but he asked me to, you know, come play some drums with him and try out. Not try out, but, you know, jam or whatever you want to call it. And, right. Of course, I know a bunch of lip songs already, so we said this drum kit they had, pretty, you know, pretty nice drum kit. And Ivan's just throwing down the bass, and Wayne was playing some guitar, and I was playing some drums, and it was it was great. Yeah. And um, what's the point of the story? And then I was just in the band, right? And you start touring with them. Start touring them like three or four months later, and then we're just doing the thing, you know. And then you're, from my perspective, I'm you know these guys are older, and I'm right. I'm, I'm a twenty. I'm, I guess I was twenty two at that point, twenty two, and like shit. You know. What's the first recording you do with them? Um. We did a couple of um, weird B-side things. We had to cover Ballrooms of Mars by T-Rex. Yeah, I know that one, Slider. Yeah, fucking awesome song. I, the, T-Rex is my first gig, you know. I know, we talked about that. The <laughs> concert was fucking T-Rex. I'm like, how cool is that? <laughs> just the, that? That tells you right there how much older you are than I am. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but, uh, so we, we, did a ver we did a cover of that for like a weird Warner Bros. B-side. But, you know, the first real recordings we did was for that, uh, the transmissions from the Satellite Heart album. And oh, yeah. By then, I was, you know, was pretty comfortable. Wayne and I were actually even writing songs at that point together. And, you know, it just, um, I don't know, it just very comfortably uh, evolved from that point. You know, it was never, I think the Flaming Lips were always like, they never, it wasn't like each person had one certain job they did, you know. Like right. A lot of bands are like that, and it's just the way it is, which is fine. You know? And Led Zeppelin, you know, John Bonham plays the drums, and Robert Plant sings, you Page, Page plays guitar, you know. With the lips, it was always like, I think the drummer played some piano, and, you know, Michael would do weird, you know, whatever it was, you know. Right. So when I joined the band and started recording with them, we just, whoever had a part, we just played a part. So and it was very comfortable, it was no big deal. And, um, you know, that was just, that's been my reality since I was 22, was being the Flaming Lips. Right. But the change comes where you leave the drums for the gigs. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, only because, um, you know, we'd made that record, The Soft Bulletin, and uh, Ronald, our guitar player, had quit. Right. And um, we just didn't know how we were going to present the show. It was like, well, I could I could play drums, and we could have a bunch of other people hire these people to play these other parts that I play on the record, or we could just put the drums on a tape, which is what we did, and I would just play this other stuff live, guitar and keyboards, and sing backing vocals and stuff like that. And um, so that's what we were doing for, you know, when we started doing that in 1999, it, it was kind of a, it seemed like a novel idea, it seemed like an interesting thing. Now it's no big deal, you see bands all the time where there's three people playing and there's, they got a whole backing track thing going, there's video stuff going on, you know what I mean? Yeah, um, the Go Team had the horns and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the, the, that, that band's an extreme example because there's a lot of people playing, but there's also a lot of stuff that's like backing track stuff, you know? Right. It's just a big wash of sound. That's really foreign. That shows my age big time. What's that? <laughs> that shows my age big time because I haven't really done that. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's kind of, you, you do it out of necessity in some ways. You know, if you ever, if you made a record where you had, where Watt was doing a bunch of stuff with the orchestra or whatever, keyboards and choirs and shit like that, and you had to re- recreate it live, well, you'd have two options. You'd either do it and hire a bunch of people live or you just put on a tape and have a tape play, you know. Yeah, not enough room in the boat. I'd go for yeah. the tape. Yeah. You know, I just made a record. Yeah. With Nels. Man, I saw some video footage of that. <laughs> that really? motherfucker's crazy, man. <laughs> yeah. How'd that go? I did it. You know, I, I still got to put some uh, singing and mix it, but he's in, yeah, well, he's sensei big time. You know, you just, you don't even have to use music. You could use food words. <laughs> and he he translates it and makes it six string. Oh well, he played twelve string on every song too, and electric sitar. Nice. So I, I asked him, Nails, please play your most psychedelic you ever done. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, man, he went. He did the, the pedal dance big time in real time. In real time. Yeah, you know, it's a uh, pretty. Much of it. I think maybe what you saw was like the tail end of a jam. What I saw was him playing lightning fast flurries of weird distorted sound. And like, the rhythm section just uh, in one groove thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, like, when you're making records, um, you know, with the minute minute, be one thing, but when you're making records now, yeah. Like, you're recording, you're, in, you know, you're there for the recording, you're in charge and stuff. How involved are you with the mixing and stuff like that? Yeah, I'm pretty... I don't have my hands on the knobs. But you're there saying, here's what... Uh, yeah, I'm asking... It's almost like what I'm asking Nels to do, help me realize this, but you know the guitar. Yeah. So so I'm feeding them concepts, but those... Uh, the knob man, Jimmy, he's... Uh, make it, or whoever the engineer is this time is... Yeah. He knows his machine, and so I, I trust him. Well, that's the way you have to work. You know? So, like a motor and a transmission, and you I know, know he's got to get the shit to the wheels. I know I'm kind of struggling with that right now because I'm doing this music for this uh, documentary that's coming out, <laughs> and you know I can play instruments, you know, whatever. I can write melodies and songs and play different things, but as far as you know, the technicality of mixing music, man, I yeah, do that worth the shit. Yeah, I don't, I don't trust in a lot of ways, but. Yeah. I'm the same way. It's like, I need someone to just come in here and I say, okay, make the drums sound like this, make the bass sound like this, yeah, whatever. 
But right. For me, I, I can't technically do it very well. It always, always sounds like mush. And it's a tough thing. Yeah, I, I, I'm in your boat with that. Okay, we're in the same boat then. Yeah, because uh, I think I'm too close to my machine, and I, I don't get enough perspective. And I don't really know they're the boards, you know, how to get those things. No, that's a different... That's I think you have to spend time at it, yeah. That's something to be respected, I think. Uh, totally, just like a cat playing. Yeah, I agree, absolutely. So, yeah. And I've, you know, I've over the many years I've recorded the Flaming Lips, we've always had Dave Fridman with us, who I think is... Um, I don't know. He's just the master. You know? Yeah, he's bad. He's um, most, you know, he's just the best. So when you're used to working in that environment, where you have to, you just set up your guitar and start playing, and you know it's going to be recorded in the best possible way. Yeah. I get, when I get home, I try to record some guitars. Like this sounds like shit. You know? <laughs> the amp sounds good. The guitar sounds good. But when I put it to, to tape or whatever you want to call it, hard drive, it just sounds like crap, and it's really a struggle. Right, right. I'm kind of going through that phase right now. Like, damn, how can I figure this out on my own? But you build relationships, you know, just like uh, trying to be a one-man. Uh, Nels, a couple of days ago, just did a one-man guitar album. Yeah. It's all guitar and, uh, man, intense. The focus, the last session I did with him a couple of days ago, 12 hours straight. And the guy just, you know, he's got... He's something else. It's He's a music machine. Yeah, pretty l lucky. It's a good deal, man. I am pretty lucky. Yeah, totally a good deal. But you do a lot of stuff, man. I like, you know, every day on MySpace, I'm like, oh, what's Wad up to today? You know. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just—it's it, not—it's not that it's weird. It's just it's because uh, my 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 gig right now is I'm just home with the family. You know, so we're not, the lips aren't going to start touring again until I think June or something like that. All right. And then we'll just be touring, you know. But while I'm home, I'm yeah, you know, I'm recording at home and stuff. But I'm not going out every night playing gigs and stuff. But it seems like that's what you're doing. Yeah. Well, I think part of it's SoCal, and it being spread out, you can play a lot of pads without saturating the one dealio like maybe other towns. That's what it seems like. Yeah. It seems like every night you're doing. You got Banyan. You got. Uh, Missing men last night. So that's that's Stephen Perkins, right? Banyan's Perkins, yeah. I, I played with him in San Francisco. Yeah, I just did four gigs with him. And Nels was on board. How's he doing? Yeah, he's happening. He was in some band he just uh, let go of uh, with Navarro. Oh, Navarro, yeah. Right. The horror of uh, the rock scene, I think. Yeah, well, maybe less music and more um, other things, like uh, reality television, radio, <laughs> or... Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he's he's branched off. <laughs> yeah, he's doing all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Right, so that band's done now. Perks, um, he you know he he does a lot of banyan without me and Nels because we can, we can't be there for a lot of gigs, especially well, on the. You got Stooges, you got Watt, you got whatever. Yeah. Right, and the Missing Men I played last night. I got Second Men. I got Dose gigs coming up. I've had Dose almost 23 years now. That's so my tell me, what what exactly is the deal with Dose? <laughs> it's two bases. <laughs> I know, but what else is the lineup? That's it. There's no drums or anything? No. I didn't know that. It's pretty Econo. <laughs> oh, I thought it was like you and... Um, Kay from um, Black Flag. Sorry, I'm being slow here, buddy. I'm tired. No, yeah, it's I'm okay. Like a drummer and a guitar player, but it's no. just you two guys? Okay. It's just big. You and the gal. And we're and we got just done a fourth album. I should flow them to you because it is kind of weird music. 
what would you what would you liken it to? I mean, if you had to mm. describe it. <clears throat> yeah, I wonder. Uh, because it's kind of like a total, uh, for a bass player, indulgent thing where you just, uh, because you're uh, the frequency so narrow for the bass, you really have to play the holes or you step all over each other. So it's a challenge really in composition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's kind of ping pong. It's not one person playing lead and the other one playing rhythm so much. It's like uh, letting holes for each other and uh, passing the ball around. It sounds kind of cool. Oh, well, yeah, I should, I, I should flow you some. But uh, we've been doing it for many years. I mean, we come from the older days. Uh, you know, before punk, bass players in rock and roll were really looked down on. You know, as like, you know, the right field or where you put the retarded friend. And, I guess. Uh, punk really equaled things out because, you know, everybody was lame, so the bass player was on the same level. Really yeah. Think that? Well, um, my experience, the arena rock days, uh, I mean, I, I you listen to those records, no, bass players were respected, but for some reason, people playing in the garages, no one wanted to play bass. And then guys who ended up on bass were ones, because uh, there were so many guitar players, they, they want to get the gigs. And of course, there's the one guy in high school who was on the stand-up in the school band. But like nobody, not not like what Lee, uh, Les Claypool and Flea did in like make young people, that's the first instrument they want to do. That's more a newer thing, or tw- last 20 years or something. So, uh, out of that insecurity, uh, you know, we wanted a band with no competition. <laughs> you know, because there was this fucking hierarchy thing, you know, and uh, although, you know, the mission of the bass to be a foundation for a band is very important. And, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah and, and, you know, in a lot of ways, bass is felt more than it's heard. It's a, politically, it's a very in, interesting instrument in a band. But I don't know. It was just a whim, you know. And then we just chased it down. She's got an incredible work ethic, and I tried to focus to it, and we I'm went sure. on it. Yeah. And none of it's really wasted and then because your personal relationship. Oh well, we used to be married. But you're not anymore. Uh, maybe for 16 years. Man, I'm, I don't know this. I'm so sorry. I should know. <laughs> That's why I had you on the radio show so people can know about this. Get more information about it before we actually have these phone conversations. <laughs> no, it's all right. People can know. You know, we're. I thought you guys were still together. I, I we are, but it, married to music. But not romantically. <laughs> no, no, uh, uh, not like that. But uh, man, she is tight buddy with me. Believe me. I'm sure anyone yeah. you know is a close friend of yours. Well, you know how some marriages... 20 years or something, you know. Right, but some marriages, people get bitter on each other, but um, not with this one. So I, I like to hear that. It's good. You know, me and my wife had the same thing. We were together for about six years, and then we <clears throat> broke up in 1997 and um, remained friends for many years, you know. And then I was going through all my drug bullshit, and then I got cut off the opiate stuff in 2001, and we sort of uh, gravitated back towards each other and got married in 2004, and now we got two fucking two kids. Yeah, right. So. That, there's some of that in the, the Freak uh, movie. What's that? The Fearless Freak. Freaks. A little bit. What did you think of that movie? 
Um, I think some of it's kind of a cheap, kind of cheap, but um, um, I think it kind of tells the story. You know? I think it's sort of. I think the, the great thing about the movie is that you really sympathize with the characters. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> it's not so much like an overview of here's what happened with the band. It's like you kind of get sucked in personally with with the guys in the band, which I think is a great thing. Yeah, that's what I thought. It was a human story, big time. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's the good thing about it. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, I got no problem with it. I, we, Bradley, the guy that made the film, I, I love that guy. He's that's why I was going to ask you. You guys didn't really me- make it. Another cat made it. Well, it's a documentary about us. Right, right. So. And from the out, from another perspective. Yeah, but he's pretty close with us. He has been for years. You know, he's been making videos with Wayne since '92 or something like that. So, so he had good insight. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, now, I haven't seen it in a while, but yeah, sure. Uh, vis a vis that in the Christmas on Mars. Now that's an in-house. That's a lips thing. Yeah, that's a that's a Wayne Coyne production there. Right. Wayne Coyne production, but you have a pretty major role. Well, sort of the main protagonist character in the film, yeah. Because they, they kind of touch of that in that film, too. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So um, I'm sort of the main, I guess the main character in some ways, but not really, because I'm not really, um, how do I say it? I'm not really the star of the show. It's the... The film, it's, it's very weird. It's like, you know, you, have you ever seen Racerhead? Oh, yeah, I love it. I never, I would never, I wouldn't want to compare this film to Eraserhead, but I would in the way that, you know, the, the main character of Eraserhead, which is, what's that actor's name, Jack Nance or something? Yeah, he looked like Jack Brewer. He was a friend of David Lynch, and Lynch to do this part. He ended up being most of David Lynch's films. But, you know, he's not really a star, but he's the, the guy you see most mostly, you know. And he's just kind of walking around looking weird. But, right. But Christmas on Mars does have a plot, but um, it, there's, it's not—it's not really cut and dry as to—it's it, it, not a traditional film in that way. Um, I really say I'm the star of the show, but I'm sort of the main character that you're—you're you're sort of following around and watching what what he's dealing with. Sort of like yeah, David and uh, Racer. What what did you get from Racerhead? I, I'm interested. I, I did get kind of a message. I didn't get a message. April 27, 2008. It's the second hour of the Watt from Pedro show, and we continue with the uh, March 7 and April 21st, 2008 interviews with uh, Stephen Drodes of the Flame and Lips. Uh, that was conducted by myself here in Pedro over the phone with him in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. What I got from it was like, no matter how, like a, like a, a ball bearing from a distance looks so smooth but you get close enough and there's going to be divots and filth and any everything is porous nothing is a a, a, a smooth surface I can see that yeah. you know when he looks in the radiator and all the little filth in there and the little that that's what I got from it in a way that the the idea of um, kind of making fun of a 50s idea of suburbia and everything is packaged and together and everything but the dirt behind the daydream yeah that's just it the dirt behind the daydream well that's probably more than the film's actually worth actually (laughs) (laughs) no I didn't mean it that way to me it's just visually you know um, I don't get an emotional response from it or anything what about that music yeah that's (laughs) 
that cat who made that music, he had some show here called New Wave Theater on a cable channel, and Minuteman and Black Flag were on it, and he ended up getting strangled to death. Really? Yeah, I, I was just I'll now trying to think of his name, but he made a New Wave album. Um, he was kind of in the business or the racket somehow, but yeah, it was horrible how he was murdered. I don't think it was ever solved. Well, did the Jack Nance guy die of die mysterious death too? Yeah. The actor from Racerhead, the main guy. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it's jinxed. But that music was so bizarre. I saw that in the seventies, you know. Well, see, you saw it when you were supposed to see it. I saw it in high school, like in nineteen eighty-six or something like that. Okay. You know what I mean? I never. I don't know. I like some David Lynch films, but my favorite is actually Elephant Man. I don't know if you've seen that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a, Hurt. It's a powerful movie. John Hurt, I think is. John Hurt, yeah. Is the dude? Right. Yeah, I think I saw it. Yeah, late seventies or early eighties. Uh, a racer, and it was one of those things like with Warhol films and uh, John Waters at midnight, an art house kind of trip. Because during my thirties, I didn't see any movies, but in my twenties, I saw a lot of these. Uh, yeah, what I would kind of equal to punk or something. And not well, merch yeah, movies. Yeah, again, this is like an age thing where, you know, all the things you were living through, I kind of missed out on. I mean, imagine when you were starting the Minutemen with fucking D. Boone and Shirley yeah. and all that shit. I was in fifth grade, you know. From <laughs> perspective here. I know, but just circumstance. You got a pretty uh, wide knowledge of uh, uh, avant garde and stuff, and it shows in your music and stuff. And then, yeah, uh, also, me and D. Boom weren't playing with our pop at six years old. I mean, what kind of advantage do you have on us that way? Well, that's true, I guess, yeah. So, circumstance puts us in different places. Yeah, but you were always coming from a perspective of creating your own thing from scratch. And that's why I have so much respect for you and, and all of that stuff, from you to fucking, you know, Thurston Moore to uh, whoever, you know. And Henry Rollins or whatever, you know, it's like I, Wayne Coyne, all those people. It's like to me, it's a league of people that started their own thing from scratch and had no idea what what was really out there. You know, just starting your own thing. Yeah. Of course, for me, I came from a my background was like I was just an entertainer playing playing jobs on the weekends with my dad. Yeah, right. But did, there was a music part to it. Yeah, but still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think it's where we were at that point in time. That was the situation. You know, punk had to come out of this thing that people had forgotten. I actually think it was a, a rebirth of probably some '60s uh, experiments. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. Like just some people bored and disillusioned with what was going on. Like, oh, let's just try to create something, you know, for ourselves. You know? Yeah, a lot of it, I think, was kind of even a reaction against arena rock I know we keep talking about that and it's funny because you were talking about Peter Frampton and like, <laughs> and the like, like you do motherfucker <laughs> you know? and that cracked me up because actually between you and me and I guess your radio broadcast or whatever it is I kind of like that song actually <laughs> just because to me it, it, it paints this picture because I wasn't there when it was happening you know to me it paints this picture of like everything's cool man this is cool I know. Then some idiot sees it as a Nuremberg rally <laughs> and makes a band with his buddy. <laughs> right, right. You know. But you guys are like, this is fucking bullshit. You're fucking I know. stuck in Pedro. Right, right. You know, whatever this is. 
great. We're disenfranchised. What's that? Disenfranchised. Yeah, disenfranchised. But, you know, for me, part of the bummer of what happened to punk rock was that, you know, it was it was so self-righteous in a lot of ways. And last, the anarchy, it got very formula. Yeah, that's what I mean. So yeah. it became like, if you weren't, if you didn't act a certain way and dress a certain way and play a certain way, you weren't punk rock. It's like, fuck, who gives a shit about that? Yeah, because it was it really set up against that kind of stuff, I thought. That's why I was attracted to it. Well, that was the idea, yeah. Yeah. And, uh... That's where you, the Minutemen, it's like, that's really its own thing. There's no other band in the world that's like the Minutemen. I know we're talking about your past from 30 years ago, but still, you know. Well, I, you know what? This is trippy. I get asked by young people all the time, what was the real punk like? So they're suspicious, too. Yeah. You know? Because the promise of the slogan is so huge, and then the reality is, can be kind of a letdown. That's true, I know. Yeah. And then the whole punk rock thing, you know, I always thought that, in some ways, to me, the only thing worse than an aging hippie is an aging punk rocker. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> you're not. No, you, you're not that. You're, you're an alien. You're a rock and roll mutant. So I mean, the people that have these notions of what things are supposed to be, you know, just you and I talking about music. It's like, well, you know, a hardcore, you know, aging punk rocker would talk about John Coltrane with reverence or whatever. No. Maybe I'm not making sense. No, you are, you are. But my basic thing is I'm here to learn. So I I don't have figured out, even though circumstance gave me some years, <laughs> you know, I pulled some shifts, but I'm still here to learn. And uh, actually, I heard Coltrane through punk people. Hey, there you go. So, there, I'm wrong, yeah. You know, I do owe, you know, Pettibone. That's where I meet Pettibone. There was uh, some very interesting people in the old days. There still are some. Like I said, the promise is so big, it does attract people who are looking for something. And so maybe they, in their own hearts, can keep it alive by daring to take chances. But anybody wants to, you know, set up a museum or something, you know, that's kind of bizarre. I got you. But to me, it's, you know, the knowing is in the doing, and that's the only place it can exist. And not really, I, I you know, I'm human, I get sentimental, but in a way, you got to let go if you really are into it. I mean, the word punk was, you know, it's a guy who gets fucked in jail for cigarettes. I mean, why would anybody call their music this? Yeah, I remember the first time I heard it. She called someone a punk. It was my mom told me that. Yeah. Yeah. It had nothing to do with music. Yeah, and it was like, wow, why they call it this? But then I, what I saw was like, you know what? They just don't care what anybody thinks. And it still hadn't codified into some kind of orthodoxy. And it was almost like anything goes. Which, Which is fucking beautiful. Yeah, I know. Right. So whatever name you call it. And then we, we, we saw certain things to, you know, because Petty Bowen and Art, he knew about Dada. He taught me about Dada. And actually the stuff was going on in the, in the teens, you know of the last century and then people like Woody Guthrie in a way so it really had a lot of strains it didn't really start in 1976 that's a good way to look at it I think yeah Yeah, to me that's the only place it has value and the idea of starting your own band that can't have started in 76 but for some reason it had urgency for us no that was your thing that was your reality right Buddy Holly or something like that it's like you know 
people talk about Elvis, but, you know, fucking Buddy Holly wrote his own song and stuff. Yeah, he was wild. He was crazy. He was yeah, Dee Boom was a big fan. He's dead at 22. Yeah. It's like rock star, you know, mythological death or whatever, but... I don't know, I get kind of frustrated with... I wish my mind could be blown by some new sounds coming out, but I think I'm just overtired from raising... <laughs> I got, got two kids now, you know. If someone would have told me six years ago I'd have two kids and a house and all that stuff, I'd been like, I'm not dead, really? Okay, I'm surprised. <laughs> yeah, but uh, like for this film here... Yeah. ...that you made music to, mm-hmm. uh, you probably got the inspiration for the music from watching the film. No, no, not at all. Oh, they, no? Okay. They sent me a, a script of it, and we talked about some things, and I just started creating these pieces of music that I... I guess I just wanted to create them anyway, you know, for, for whatever they'd be, Flaming Lips or something else, and and so I'd send them a track, and they oh, we're going to... Okay, we love it, and they'd put it into a piece of the film, and that sent them another track that had a totally different sort of trip to it, you know. And they put that in the film, and it's sort of, it's kind of going like that, really, where I'm just sending them pieces of music, and they're, piece, they're placing them into the film. So, um, it's, I think it's going to be pretty good, actually. It works out. I feel like there's a couple of, because what they want from me is different moods and stuff, you know, for their different scenes. And so, you're providing the inspiration. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, that's intense. They're really loud. Sorry. I'm sitting in the back porch here. So. No, that's cool. Uh, but, but that's intense, because you're providing the inspiration. And then you talk about, whoa, man, I wish I could hear some new sounds. I want some inspiration. And, and that's the human thing, I think, is taking turns with the dilemmas. Yeah, that's that's cool. I know what you mean. Um, but this, yeah, this film, it, it could be pretty good. We'll see what happens. But uh, Does it have a title yet? I think it's called The Heart. The Heart is a Drum Machine. I think that's what they're calling it right now. And they're trying to what they're trying to cover is how music you know um, to me more than any other art form and I think they're saying the same thing is, is really connected to the human psyche and you know our emotions and evolution and everything I mean music is so much a part of that you know rhythm and everything you know right you know my son Daniel he's like two and a half right yep and he's not I don't think he's super advanced in any way I mean he likes he likes letters and numbers, and he loves animals, and he likes stacking blocks, so he's kind of, he's a he's a thinking kid, but, man, he can, you know, he can sing the ABC song, like, kind of in pitch and rhythm, it's really bizarre. Wow. Like, he can sing A, B, C, D, E, and it's weird, you know? I mean, maybe I'm just a proud father, but I think it's, that's pretty, pretty intense that he's doing that already, just two and a half, you know? You think he's going to grow up and be a musician? I was, at, when he was, you know, when Becky and I, my wife, you know, Becky, my wife, talked about him being born, I'm like, whatever he wants to do, I'm fine with. But I'll be really, I'll be really over the moon if he takes to music. I mean, he's already taking to music, and you know? he seems to be really into it. But um, I, yeah, maybe we'll we'll see what happens. But hopefully, he'll. I mean, he's already embracing music. You know, he loves he loves some things. For, he loves craft work, <laughs> which is cool. When he gets six, are you going to put him in the bed? <laughs> Wayne talks about that. I feel like your old man did. Yeah, like, right. like, playing like keyboards or something. Twenty-seven. Like slow down. And that's an old tradition. That's like vaudeville, where you put the family in the act. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, what's funny is that uh, you know my dad's pretty sick right now. He's in a nursing home down in Texas. But I went and saw him about I guess two weeks ago. Probably since the last time I talked to you on the phone. And, uh, in fact, you call me Lagrange. 
Oh, that's right. I, yeah, and fucking Minutemen was playing on fucking XM radio. In the Redicar. <laughs> yeah. How cool is that? <laughs> and I, yeah, that's why we, we were talking. We're like, it's fucking D Boone's birthday. Yeah. That was a weird thing. <laughs> but yeah, I went down and saw my dad, and and he told me that he just I don't know why he just had just recently found out that his grandfather started a, a polka waltz band in Texas in 1890 and was like the leader of this band. Damn. So it goes way back. And yeah. So um, I'm sure Daniel, my, my little boy, will be involved with music somehow, you know. But for me, it's like if he wants to do it, I'm into it. If he doesn't care about it, I don't care either, you know. I mean, but he's so surrounded and involved with it every day. I mean, every day I'm in my little studio and he comes in there. And now his new thing is... Um, He'll come to me and go, he'll go, rock, rock. <laughs> and what that means is he wants to come into my little studio office and, and play music with me, which is cool. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> rock, rock. <laughs> now, are you working on New Lips songs? Um, I, you know, I got a few. Um, you know, Wayne and I always, always have a pile of stuff before we go into the studio for a, a new record or something, you know. I think right. I got three or four things. And um, it just just depends on... We probably won't start recording the next record till you know early spring of next year or something. You know? But, you know, Wayne's always got a ton of ideas, and he's always thinking so far in the future. And then I've always got songs that I just want to record. You know, just these ideas I want to record, but I want to record them with Wayne singing and the sounds that we do in the Flaming Lips world. You know what I mean? Yep. But yeah, I, you know, we'll have plenty of stuff ready to go when it's when it's time to go. So. But the next project is the movie. Yeah, that's what I'm still I'm still working on that right now. Yeah. Actually, uh, this week I'm working on a because besides the songs I'm doing for the movie, they want me to do with they want me to do these uh, covers like uh, they want to make a separate CD. It's going to come out with the movie. It's just like cover versions of songs. Yeah. So um, this is this sounds weird, but I'm I'm going to do a cover version of the Border song by Elton John with Maynard from Tool. We're going to do that. Wow. And then right now I'm working on the. the I don't know if you know the, the. I don't know if you like Radiohead. Uh, they have a song called the Pyramid Song. I saw them at Coachella. And How was that? <clears throat> they reminded me of Pink Floyd. Well, yeah, totally, man. <laughs> you know, it, it, that's what I was th thinking of. I mean, there's uh, some beats and stuff that seem more contemporary, but it's, it reminded me of the vibe, and it was uh, mainly around the singer. It seemed like. Yeah, I could see that. Well, I, you know, I didn't like radio. I didn't like Radiohead for a long, long time. I didn't start liking them until a few years ago, really. But now I'm kind of going back and listening to these records that I kind of naysay when they came out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now I'm like, man, I was wrong about that stuff. Some of this stuff is really whatever. It's just it's just good music. You know? So I'm doing. They have this song called the Pyramid Song, which I think is one of. The, if you want to Google it or something, check it out. I think okay. It's one of the finest things ever recorded. So I'm doing a cover of that. And I'm trying to figure out who I can get to sing it. Um, but it's pretty psychedelic. So you're yeah. collaborating with people. What's that? You're collaborating with people. Yeah, yeah. So I'm getting different people together for some different cover versions. And that's new for you. What's that? That's new for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, personally, in you know, the Flaming Lips, we always do things with different people. But it's, it's kind of a nice project because I'm really just doing all this stuff myself. You know, just, just me. Doing it by myself, like kind of working in a void by myself, and to see if I can get, you know, see this through and get get this shit done, you know, because it's always been my problem. I'll start a project and then, like, ah, eh, you know, six months later I get bored with it, so I just, it kind of, you know, 
back burner. Yeah, it just kind of dies on the table there or whatever. But this one, I'm going to see this one through and give it my best shot. But uh, it's fun, so. Well, um, yeah, like you're putting to, uh, together bands for the songs, a band a song. That's what I'm going to try to do, yeah. I've yeah. only got two, two ideas so far, but um, I've got some time, so. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm thinking like stupid stuff. Like I want to get, uh, I don't know if you know who Goldfrapp is, Allison Goldfrapp, singer. No. She's, she's wonderful. I'm going to try to get oh. a hard cover with me. Heart? Heart, yeah. <laughs> you probably don't like Heart, but man. I remember them. <laughs> man, if you were seven years old and you heard Barracuda, dude, it, you know. They were kind of like a Led Zeppelin band with a woman singer. I know, that's that's what you think, but, and and they were, but if you listen to that stuff now, it's like, it's just so much, so much stuff's really fucking wicked, you know. Magic Man. But see, you were too old for that. You are like, God, that shit's fucking square, classic. <laughs> <laughs> But, like, I'll say it again. If you were seven years old and you heard Barracuda, you're like, man, it's fucking badass. Well, the lady had some pipes. She could sing. Yeah, yeah. And they had cool guitar textures and stuff and synthesizers and stuff like that. You know? Effects pedals. <laughs> oh, <laughs> You guys didn't know about the 70s. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And on this new record, I didn't use any. N- okay. Nails brought in 30... 30- thinking about the effects pedals thing with you. I love that idea of, like... Man, we didn't know there was like a fuzz pedal or a flanger or a phase pedal or no. whatever. Nels brought in 36 pedals. I bet he did, yeah. <laughs> that guy, he's a maniac, man. And uh, Jimmy the Engineer, you know, they're talking pedal talk, and I'm Watts, don't know what to say. He has no <laughs> knowledge. <laughs> I did want to ask you something about, because um, I know you, I mean, you absolutely love John Coltrane and all yeah. those guys, right? And these guys, you know, besides being um, original artists, right? I mean, they absolutely were in- innovative and inventive and all those kinds of things, you know? Yeah. And what they did was they had a, a hardcore knowledge of how music works, of music theory, right? Right, right. They had to to, to have their craft. And then you guys are coming from a, a viewpoint of, like, not really knowing... No, sorry, not knowing anything about music, right? Right. But creating a new art form. Trying. Right. And it seemed to me, and this is just my perspective, it seemed like that punk rock, for lack of a better term, was anti-music theory or anti-knowing how to knowing about music, right? Yeah, because it was a, a kind of anti-rock establishment. So you don't want to, yeah, you don't want to know how to play because that's what they're doing. Right, but as you as the you know as you grew older and the years went by and stuff, and you got into John Coltrane or whoever, um, did it seem like uh, how do I? I'm not sure how to phrase. It well, what Coltrane did, what I because we actually thought he was doing punk. I didn't know he was dead. I didn't. I, we I thought he was an older guy doing it, but I thought he was an old guy doing punk because right. what we felt in Coltrane music was uh, the emotion, and that's what we thought was lost in the uh, fusion in the okay. more te- pro- progressive technical well, thing you, you just nailed it right there it was this like f- human feeling even though the man had technique up the yang we didn't know because we didn't know how to pr- appreciate that we just had this feeling coming out of the speakers like god damn okay and you know and not be, having any knowledge of that music it sounded kind of n- noisy but this feeling came out, and it, and it struck a chord in us. It's, we thought it was 
part of this other movement. You know, uh, we didn't know. And then finding out about him and stuff and his history, and especially in his later years where he's taken stuff out, he took a lot of blows from his own, you know, field, his own. Yeah, yeah. Right? They were calling it anti-jazz, right? Downbeat Magazine, writing articles, anti-jazz. Right, because he was going so far left field, yeah. Yeah, isn't that weird? I mean, we find this out later. Didn't know. Didn't but know he anything. Play anything, that's the thing, you know. That's right. Started, yeah, he wasn't playing blindly. He was playing like he knew what he was playing. No, that dude practiced 10 or 12 hours a day. So I wondered about that with you, like your perception of that, like... You know, not knowing about how music theory works, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we didn't know at all, you know, and it was just the emotion and that stuff. That's what we were feeding on. We didn't know. We didn't really know sax players. <laughs> we didn't grow up with any. Why would you, yeah? Yeah, we didn't. Even keyboard players, you know? We didn't know anybody. In the old days, keyboards cost a lot of money. No doubt, yeah. And no one in the projects where we were had those things. We didn't know. So a lot of this stuff, they're just sounds off records. We don't know about how it's made. Shit, we didn't even know how the guitar shit was really made. Yeah, that's what you mean. <laughs> you know, we're stumbling around. I used to wonder about that, like the legitimacy of music, if you knew too much about music. But it's like, it's almost like a vocabulary, you know, if you... If you want to say something, you have to know certain words. All right. I know what you mean. Like sort of with a painting when the, the Gauguin and the primitive clay stuff, Yeah, they're, they're trying to get to this other essence and get away from the uh, trying to be like a photograph, you know, Vermeer or something. Yeah, exactly. So, you know. We got cameras to do that. So why paint like that? Why not try to get back to the spirit? And yeah. that's, that's the way we looked at it, too. Yeah, in fact, we were embarrassed. I mean, as retarded and lame as we were, we still knew, you know, Bucks Boogie, Oyster Cult, and these cats couldn't play that. <laughs> you know, and we felt tainted. And that's why these bands like Wire and the pop group are really intense on us. Uh, they just said there's no rules. You could go... And, and we went for these little song formats and everything to try to hide the rock and roll. We were kind of embarrassed about it, in a way. These wow. guys, they were doing it because they're just learning. It's crazy, <laughs> you know? isn't it? I know, I know. When I look back on it, we were ridiculous and stuff. But no, that's just the way it was. You know? Yeah. I, I think it's totally legitimate. And it, I think what happened with, you know, the American, whatever, for lack of a better term, like the American indie rock scene, it couldn't have happened if people all knew how to play their instruments and stuff, you know. But same time that whole scene when I finally discovered it 10 years too late it was like wow you really can do things any way you want to you know yeah I know you don't have to sound like Led Zeppelin or whoever or right. Floyd or John Coltrane or fucking you know uh, Bach or whatever you can create your own thing and that was for me that was a real eye opener you know yeah, well, I think uh, early on we were really uh, hit over the head with this idea of talent, and you could only really appreciate people with talent. We didn't have enough faith in ourselves to say, well, we'll decide who has the talent, and maybe it doesn't go with the uh, herd right now, because we see something in it. It's touching us somehow. There's some vibe, uh, emotion. Uh, what, like uh, early Daniel Johnston songs. Uh, yeah. Technically, they're not that together, but they have a spirit well, you can't top that, yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a trip. You can't top that. That's that's a whole different 
a means of expression, you know. Right, and so... That's what I wondered about for many years. I couldn't reconcile, like, knowing music theory, you know, what, what I did learn when I was growing up and stuff just on my own. And then, like, being, you know, quote-unquote punk rock. It seemed like those two just couldn't coexist together, but... That's not right at all. No, no. And you got to understand our circumstances. In some ways, we were scapegoating, too. We were uh, really angry at uh, the culture that we were in of not using music as expression, not writing your own songs. And we blamed it all on the uh, arena rock stuff. Uh, why didn't anybody we know wrote their own songs? Why weren't we writing our own songs? Why were we copying off records in the bedroom? Why weren't we trying to use music as a way of getting feelings out? And so it became almost, yeah, a war. And when you get like that, you don't think about things, and uh, you're looking for people in uniforms. And that makes sense, you know. And so that's kind of where we were at. And uh, but the interesting, early on, D Boone told me, you know, whatever we play, it'll still be the Minutemen. <laughs> I thought, well, okay, yeah, <laughs> I'm into that. <laughs> and you know, the Flame and Lips epitomize that. You cats can do any music, and you're going to be the lips. Well, we got in a good spot, you know. We just—I think we decided, you know, sometime in the late '90s, like, you know, why, why try to be one specific thing you have to do? You know, why right. pull all these other, other, <clears throat> excuse me, elements of whatever musics and bring them together and make them flaming lips. Because music's too big. And that other thing's kind of a marketing angle or something, you know, to get you stuck into one sound. Yeah. No, it's, it's true. It's, it's, that's true today as, as as well as any other time, really. Right, right. And and so the idea, you coming together as music people, everything's fair game. You know? It, you just, you're going to use different motifs or, uh, you know, whatever. Um Phrasings, uh, melody, uh, chords. Yeah, it's all, it's all just expression. Yeah. Right, and then, then, and then the different instruments. You can put the drums on. You can put the guitar on. Whatever the tune, you're going to serve the tune instead of the other way around. Yeah, you know. There you go, yeah. And uh, it's one of the reasons why after Firehose, I decide not to have one band anymore. And I would just play with different people, and those projects would be their own little lives. Where you guys did it under the uh, sort of like the like I was saying, the early idea of what D Boone said, the Minuteman. Whatever we're doing, that'll be the Minuteman. Oh, definitely, yeah. That's that's definitely our theory about it. You know, just whatever we're doing, it's under the Flaming Lips umbrella. Yeah, and I think you guys, by daring like that, really uh, are lightning rod for inspiration that way. Not to copy the Flaming Lips, because that would uh, be a disrespectful, uh, disrespectful, but this idea where uh, you're going to know it's us because these individuals come together and make an interesting conversation, but we're going to talk about different things. It's not going to be the same uh, cliche every time. And, but because... Uh, we are four individuals, three individuals that come together uh, that are uh, got their own personas and then come together with their common ground. You're going to know it's the flaming lips. It's not going to be uh, just a, a changing of clothes. It's just a, a different way to relate. You know that that bond you guys have built, that togetherness, yeah. that sharing. 
I know what you mean. So, like, for you, is there... Can you could you tell me, like, in words, like, is there something you're still wanting, really desiring to do that you haven't done yet? Yeah, I mean, you know... The, there's there there is a fucking intense thing about the art of writing a song. I want to write good songs. <laughs> man, you're you're never gonna get over that. Man. Like, God damn it, man! There's this one thing I want to do that I can't. You don't even know what it is you want to do. You just want to do this thing. You know, you know what I mean? Like there, you get you get like a feeling, right? Does that make sense? Like some kind of emotional thing you get. And you're trying to turn it into, you know, musical melodies and chords. And right. For me, words are like the, I can never write words, and I can I They're can try tough. to express myself musically and melodically, but never with words. It never adds up, you know. But that's where Wayne comes in. That's where he helps my songs so much, you know. But you know, you get that feeling like, man, I want to do this thing, but you can't fucking get a grasp on it, you know. And it's not like more and more notes. You know, you're looking for the right notes. Yeah. Sort of like the good bass lines. It's not more and more notes. It's the right notes. It's the right notes, yeah. Or you know, one note. Right. One it can note. be so econo. It could be one note, you know, and you're just finding it. So that's, yeah. When do you ever reach that? <laughs> that's funny. You know? One of my things I try to do all the time is, <clears throat> I don't know if you've noticed this in some of our music, but what I like to do is, like, where the same note plays, like a melodic note will play, but then... The chords around it keep changing around the same melodic note, though. Right, right. And that's always fun to do. Like, yeah. you play a C on the bass, and I would try to play every chord that I could match with the C. Yeah, counterpoint. Yeah. In harmony. That's, that's fun to do, too. Like, you know, 20 different ways to say the same thing, you know. Right, yeah. right. It's kind of how gravity works. It pulls that? things. Well, it, it, gravity, everything pulls on each other and, and influences each other and relates to each other. And I think sound and music is that way too even dissonance because that creates a tension uh, because uh, music can also be like a film or a book where you uh, have drama so you make a tension and yeah. then you release it one, and you let it resolve one man's dissonance is another man's you know right but it can ca cause cause a moment of drama and then you resolve it I hear this a lot in Lips music you guys bring up attention and then you resolve it and everything seems to all float but you don't leave it there you make a landscape so it has hills and valleys that's fun yeah it's fun to do that kind of stuff yeah. right and uh, so th th that's pretty much a mission and so I'm trying to put my base in different situations where I, I can try and learn you know because the other thing is uh you do want to be distinctive. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you got children. Uh, my my Akachans are the songs. <laughs> they're they're going to be the things here after me. Hey, so, me too. Same same with me. Yeah. Well, then you have uh, and <laughs> children and song children. So, but for me, this is my legacy and stuff. So it's it's intense. I mean, people can watch me play a gig and look at the funny old man you know work this thing but when I'm not here to perform for him I have to things that carry on so uh, it's one of the reasons I'm so intent now on recording a lot the last 10 years I've been a little out of balance I've been doing a lot more gigs and recording and you know in the old days the minimum days we did record uh, recordings every nine months because it was like flyers 
we never really thought of it was like, you know, yeah. this shit will be here when you're gone. And we were so in the moment. Well, totally, yeah. We thought the gig was everything. So the, the recordings, they were just flyers to get people to the gig. But they're, we are human, and you can only do so many gigs. You know, before your time gets cut. And, and you're getting old, old man. Yeah. yeah. Or you go young like Dee Boone and thank God he made recordings. Or we only the dudes who are at those gigs would have knowledge. So I think making works is an important part of it too. You're definitely doing that now. So. Yeah, I, I'm really intent on it. I got a lot of plans and uh, I'm trying to do this. And in fact, I've been doing things where I just have kids uh, send me their music and I put bass to it. I don't know the bands, I don't know the people. Make music on the power book, or I do kind of know the people, or whatever. I, I, I just am trying to do this, which is so much different from my tradition because I come out of like, I want to be with this guy, I want to hang out with this guy. And this is one way we're going to do it, is with music. I never saw myself as like, maybe I could put a bass to music and not even know these people. That's, that's kind of a newer thing for me. It's pretty, uh, pretty inspiring, really. And not be like sideman, food chain kind of shit, trying to service a lifestyle, but actually be musical about it. Like I'm going to give you my best notes. I'm going to try hard, just okay. because for the, the the sake of music. That's cool, man. I don't know what to say to that. So. No, well, you asked me what am I trying to do so these days, and that's pretty hell bent mission for me nice <laughs> well <clears throat> having folks like you you know out there putting your uh, ideas out really inspires me man and I can't thank you enough about that man well you know, well, you, you know just we're you know I, I would say we're lucky that, you know I'm lucky that you know I mean how great is it that it worked out that all I have to do is like play music and I'm I get to live my life and do what I want you know what I mean Right. But don't you feel a burden of having to be creative? That's kind of tough. Sometimes I do, but then sometimes I'm just, man, I'm so happy that that's, that's the reality. That I, yeah, right. What I have to do is come up with, you know, art. Have you ever had blocks? All the time, yeah. All the time. And Aren't they frustrating? No, I mean, Wayne and I talk about this all the time. Sometimes when you think you're blocked is when you're coming up with your best stuff because it shuts off some part of your brain that's trying to, trying to, change the world and you're just like you're just doing something nonchalantly and it ends up you know you hear it 10 years later it's like man that's one of the best things I ever did you know so it kind of goes back and forth I'm not sure if that makes any sense well I'm saying it's a struggle as any kind of other job in a way yeah. You, you know, it just doesn't automatically come all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> There's a little work involved. <laughs> no, I mean, even like this, you know, this music documentary or whatever that I'm working on, it's like, you know, I'll get a, I'll get a, an inspiration for an idea, and uh -huh. it just stops there. <laughs> as soon as I start doing the work, it's like, oh, this is bullshit, this is like hack work, you know, this is nothing new. But then I start to get into it, and then I hear it like three weeks later, it's like, oh, that's, no, I like that, you know. But that's just the way it goes for me. I'm not sure how it goes for you. But. No, but the struggle to realize, you, you got an idea, but yeah. then to realize the idea. Yeah, exactly. No, you just said it right. That there. is a tough thing, yeah. And some way I'd like to get a better relationship with the machine, with the bass, to, to, to realize things a little easier. I don't know if that ever comes. 
it seems like you learn certain kinds of things to do and they lead to other things so you're lame at them and then you're trying to get onto them yeah. like uh, there's this uh, the, uh, documentary The World According to John Coltrane and uh, they're talking to uh, uh, Rashid Ali, one of his last drummers, and he's, he's saying, the guy's practicing all the time. He was already so good. Why did he do that? But what I'm thinking is, well, this is probably what happened. He'd, get, he'd conquer some discipline, but that would lead to more possibilities. He'd have to chase them down. It never was going to end. I mean, if you're truly bitten with a bug. Yeah, that's that's the struggle, you know. It's a healthy thing. Right? Like, oh, I'm good enough now. No, I mean, it's, it's a healthy yeah. thing to always be, like, thinking that you could learn more. Yeah, right, right. I, I, I believe that. For I me, believe I go, that. I definitely go through phases where it seems like every year around October or something, um, I start becoming obsessed with keep, like playing piano again, trying to learn, listening to fucking... Uh, you know who Bill Evans is? Sure. Yeah. Dude, I'm a, I'm a Bill Evans fanatic at this point. Every so is Miles. <laughs> Bill Evans and Thelonious Monk and all those motherfuckers. Like, Monk, yeah. It just gets so... Uh, it gets dense trying to figure out what they're doing. You know? I have about five books on... Uh, not piano, jazz theory, but just the theory of Bill Evans' portal structures and stuff like that. And, you know, I'll never figure it out. But every year I get involved into it and I learn, you know... Um, a million times more than I knew before, and it's great. So that'll be an ongoing thing with me for the rest of my life. And that was his trip, too. Bill Evans was always like, man, I'm not very good. Miles Davis called him the best keyboard player they'd ever played with. (laughs) He called him his favorite white man. Yeah. (laughs) What was the lines? I called him green, black, yellow, or white, motherfucker. Yeah, that autobiography is something else. But... You know, having a sense of humility like that, I think, keeps you in the learning phase. If you get it too figured out, you get cynical, I think. And well, then it, that, that's one way of looking at it. The other way of, look, of looking at it is it's not humility, it's just curiosity. You're always just curious. Well, humble like you don't have it figured out. Right, right. That's what I mean. Like, I don't, I have to acknowledge that, you know. And some cats, especially if you're in the game long enough, you know, I've done that. I've seen that. I've heard that. I don't need to know anymore. Yeah. And I think that isn't as healthy, maybe. Well, it's not. It's <laughs> not at all. And that's where that's where we talk about Coltrane, and where <clears throat> he was always, I'm sure in the back of his mind somewhere, he was like, well, I, I know a lot about stuff, but I'm still <laughs> learning. I'm still curious. Still, it's like when you meet the aging, you know, um, classic rocker guy that you know will see a, a new band and instead of being like ah I've seen it all a million times he's like oh this is cool what's that's that's a great thing Coltrane I got a bunch of interviews by him and in one place he says I think all musicians are after some kind of truth yeah yeah that what is that, though? I have no idea. I don't know. <laughs> he didn't go further than that, but he says some kind of truth. But that's such a high mark to set. But then also being kind of uh, uh, gentle about it, you know. But they're, they're doing this one interview, and some guy said, asked him, uh, I think it was his last tour in Japan, and he asked him, what, well, what would you call classical music? And he says, well, I don't know for sure, but I think that's where the people sit down to listen. 
That's what he said about it. Yeah, notice he doesn't get into the notes and the chords and all this, you know. It's the way people experienced it. That's what he's calling classical. I thought it was a really interesting thing. But that, that take on music, you know, to, uh, to be kind of humble of it, in awe of it, like you say, curious. Well, that's that's totally Coltrane, though, you know, more than, more than Miles Davis. He just seemed, Miles Davis seemed like, uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm speaking out of line, but he just seemed like, ah, then all this shit. Yeah, yeah. I kind of got that reading his book. <laughs> that no playing motherfucker, Steve Miller. <laughs> Whenever he gets into that, like, because he always liked to go on before people. He never liked playing after. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, right. All right, Miles. <laughs> that book is intense. I want to go back to the John Coltrane thing with you because yeah. you really worship John Coltrane. Yeah, I do. I mean, not just his music, but his lifestyle and everything. So. Yeah. Well, look at his war with the Drogas. What's that? His war with the Drogas. You know, 10 years it had him. And what Meltzer, Richard Meltzer, told me was really important to the scene was when he quit and got better. Because everybody was looking up to Bird and Parker, and you have to be fucked up to really play good. And, and Meltzer told me that was really intense to the scene, for not just for himself to get healthy, he only lived 10 more years but to the scene like you don't have to be as fucked up as Bird and and get and, and be musical still it's a weird thing isn't it yeah to think that you <clears throat> to try to imagine his mindset back in those days oh yeah but the other thing too you know his last tour was going to be <clears throat> no band he was going to just play with spiritual people around the world and have them teach him <laughs> John Coltrane. <laughs> yeah. It's a trip. Totally, yeah. You know. And then his music, when I listen to it, 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 it is so much... Uh, Hold on, Mark. Okay. Hold on. Yo, this, these run at this time. Over there, yeah. there yeah yeah he starts playing with Pharaoh Sanders and more primitive kind of bluesy things and he doesn't evolve it into you know more and more tight uh, tight arrangements and more Bach like stuff you know he's trying to almost get more at the spirit of it as he goes on just raw kind of yeah rawness which is a trip huh not refining it Almost, almost in opposition of trying to refine it. But see, that's where it's great because you have the skill to play very precise, specific things. Right. So what he was doing was honing, honing in on just his raw emotions and how to express them. Right, and and maybe that was his truth, the truth he was looking for. Uh, the way to do it, you know, if you if you did that every night, where you weren't okay, you weren't playing the same gig every night, and you weren't playing the same things over and over again or you could be but just trying to like with, with the great jazz guys they would play these standards or not at that point with him but he was playing songs and just to every night try to uh, try to reach in deeper you know right reinvent it had to be a pretty uh, a powerful feeling and feel pretty good to do that you know? yeah does that make sense I don't know if it makes sense. well th this is one of the reasons I look up to him yeah he dared 
you know, to push. Not just say the wall's over there, but push against to make sure it's there. And if it is there, try to push it further. Yeah, cool. And for me, man, that is a big goal. I have another interview with him. Uh, the guy asked him, you know, when you're soloing like that, what are you listening to? And he goes, the bass. And I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I missed out, man. I could have been born years before. <laughs> Damn. I been born in Pedro. Let's see. Uh, what else? No. He, he said some, uh, another bizarre thing in that same spiel. It was like a year after he quit. Uh, the Drogas in 1958 and he says yeah we're playing in a minor key and no one hits the third what what does that mean? well you flat the third in a minor but but it's all that means it's all intent you know it's never actualized that's cool yeah it's really taking it up a level but you know he's in the, the, the realm of ideas but then making them real by working that read. So that, to me, that's a great marriage. It's a, it's just yeah, something I mean, intense. About the third thing. Yeah, you're playing a minor key and no one ever hits the third. So how do you know it's minor? That is nice. I like that. <laughs> kind of blow my mind with that because you know, like you know, even in some like rock and roll and stuff, it's like you get the power, you know, the power fits or whatever. There's no, right. There's no third, but it's implied. You know, it's like it's either major or minor. But to it's especially a bunch of crazy fucking you know jazz cats riffing around, but never playing a minor or major third. That was kind of interesting. <laughs> Yeah, that's cool. I like that. Yeah, but he th- he said, you know, what I think he's hitting on is the the thing of invention, of being curious and trying to get beyond rules and regulation. Well, music theory, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In his case, music well, with theory. Well, him, it's like knowing the rules and then like, like here's here's the rules as they apply to what I'm doing, and then I'm just going to step outside those rules. You know? Otherwise, in chaos, which is not knowing the rules at all. You know? Right, right. Which is, you know, you know, somebody's just starting out, you can expect that, you know. Other people, maybe, you know, shtick. Yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, it's, it's just a trippy, a trippy thing like that about making music special. I know music talks to people in a lot of ways. Uh, some people use it, you know, for peer pressure. <laughs> Every military unit has a drummer boy. <laughs> You know, so it's used for all kinds of weird stuff. But to me, he uh, put in an ideal that I looked up to. And uh, <clears throat> I, I don't know. He speaks to me, his music. Also, maybe not being raised with that music, I have never f- systematized it. It's always new and fresh to me. That makes sense, yeah. That makes sense because, you know, when I was... <laughs> when I was growing up, you know, my dad was a horn player and stuff, but I didn't hear any jazz growing up. I would hear it here and there, but it never meant anything to me. It was always like, do, 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 you know what I mean? <laughs> the, the, the uh, you know, stereotypical jazz thing. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't care about it at all. Man. Predictable. Yeah. Right, and you end up in I Love Lucy rerun world. Yeah. You know, okay, this week it's mayonnaise, next week it'll be pizzas. And yeah, exactly, yeah. Right. And then, like, starting to really listen to it for the first time, when I was about 25 or 26, listening 
I think Miles Davis probably hit me before anybody else did. The sketches of Spain, that was something that really... Like, this is just really fucking psychedelic music. Yeah, you know what I think one of Miles' great talents was, too, was putting together the right band. He knew how to get cats together. Well, he saw a talented guy and said, I want that guy. And yeah. Said, okay, you're Miles Davis, I'll play with you. So, Bill Evans, you know, he, <clears throat> he and Miles Davis were really tight for a few years, you know. And Miles he, Davis always said he thought he was the best piano player that he ever played with. Sketches, you know, he wanted to do sketches of Spain with Jimi Hendrix. I know. And Jimi was embarrassed that he didn't know how to read and stuff. And then he died. So. And then he died. But he was uh, kind of embarrassed. Jimi Hendrix, I heard he was kind of embarrassed of his voice, too. Yeah. Great singer. Supposedly he struggled with that. Yeah. I know. <clears throat> Amazing cat, you know. But you know, but we're you we're, know, we're, we're, we're humans, humans and we've got insecurities. Well, it's hard, well, it's hard to get that from Miles. Miles Davis. But he didn't know how to put together bands. I think he, he, he did have humility. He looked at Gillespie and said, "I'm never going to have them chops, so I'm going to have the best cats playing with me." There you go. But he also wrote some fucking great songs. Yeah, so. totally, and. uh when Miles changed, the scene changed. He was a trailblazer, man. You know, out of all those notes of bebop, he gets back to the blue, blues modes, you know. punk rock, yeah. Yep, and then he goes for the, he kind of invents fusion. You know, he goes with young people, uh, young rock Almost people. White dudes. Yeah. yeah. There's a song called John McLaughlin. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I don't know how you feel about Mahavishnu Orchestra. Quite I saw him. I liked him. When did you see them? Oh, 75, 76, Birds of Fire. Are you serious? Yeah. I didn't know that. I saw it at the Long Beach Arena with uh, Rick Laird on bass, Jerry Goodman on uh, violin, Billy Cobham, uh, Jan Hammer on the synthesizer, John McLaughlin on fuzz tone 12 string. That guy, man, for about five years was just, oh, man. I mean, jazz, punk rock, whatever you want to call it, just fucked up, scrunk stuff. Yeah, big uh, Nels Klein, big fan. I bet he, he seems like he'd be a John McLaughlin fan. Yeah. That makes me very happy to hear that. Yeah, <laughs> big time. That band was intense. It was visceral, man. It was, whew. Yeah. And then, you know, after them, you know, Return to Forever, you know. Right, right. <laughs> that didn't hit me the same. Well, it's Chick Corea, right? I mean, isn't that Chick Corea? Al Di Miola, yeah, and Stanley Clark. Yeah, it gets kind of, that's when it becomes like fusion in a bad way. You know? Yeah, see what I mean? So the genre thing, it's easy to make fun of the fusion and stuff, but Mahavishnu, man, that stuff was intense. Yeah, the, <clears throat> was it the first, it was, what's the first record called? The Intermounting Flame? Yeah. Yeah. Or is it Birds of Fire? I can't no, it's Intermounting Flame, yeah. That's, yeah. It's weird because it is, it's got some bad prog elements about it, but there's some moments where it's just sheer, like, beautiful noise kind of stuff, you know. Like, man, what a weird combination of sounds. But, they were a great band. Only a couple records, and there's a live record. I think only, like, three records, really. Yeah. So they were only a brief thing. I'm not sure what he's doing. Looking around a spaceship somewhere. <laughs> Double neck spaceship. But you know, the uh, bitches brew, you know, what he comes out of that. 
that bass player, Michael Henderson, he ends up a, a disco singer. Really? Very strange, yeah. That is <laughs> But, you know, music is a trippy thing. You know, Rimbaud only wrote poems for two years of his life. You know, he was running guns after that. I didn't know that. Yeah, some people, it's not like Elvin Jones, you know, where it's, that's it. Yeah. Sometimes it's just a little brief periods. And with bands, they're like that too, which is another great thing about the flame and lips, still vital. Not not just a, a brief blip and then retread and milk in some, you know, past blip glory. You guys are still in the thing, man. Not like the Sex Pistols or something. Yeah, or the, but there's countless bands that are doing that stuff. Right, like, I got you. You know, and you guys, you, you refuse to be sentimental that way and you want to dare and get beyond her. No, we're lucky, though. We can, you know... I think Wayne and I always talk about the fact that we can always drag our drag our past along with us, you know, and always have the past our the past ten, fifteen, twenty years with us, but then always trying to create something new. Yeah, you don't have to lean on it though. Yeah, you know what I mean, because you're still vital in the moment. It's, and a, lucky, it's a lucky place to be for sure. Yeah, yeah. but I think you guys kind of work at it too. <laughs> but and also, I got to say this too. I think the listeners. Are pretty open-minded, which is a righteous thing. Again, we're lucky, you know, lucky again that I think that you know people that <clears throat> come to us for the first time just they they latch on to one thing about us that they like, but then they quickly discover that there's all these other things happening as well. You know, someone that liked a record from '90, you know would be like oh I like that era of the flaming lips but then we're still going they can still hear new things and right I like that too I, I mean, I'm not sure if that makes any sense yeah it does to me so and then we got these you know look out in the crowd it's like I'll see kids are like 16, 17 then I'll see like you know people your age might be <laughs> years old like the old schoolers you know are older you know and it's, yeah, it's a good feeling just to see, you know to see that uh, that wide wide spectrum of age differences people are all enjoying it so, sorry I'm kind of I'm kind of no but I think that's what music's really about it's about being huge and yeah. uh, be, uh, through generations and through uh, different kinds of folks it's the fabric that connects us especially when materialism stuff like that lets us down it goes through its cycles. So music, it's a true uh, human fabric. Well, it's like I'll get, you know, sometimes on MySpace I'll get like a friend request from, you know, um, Sid. He's 16. He lives in Alabama somewhere, you know. Yeah. And his music favorites are like Flaming Lips and some punk rock stuff. And then Miles Davis and then the Bee Gees and then Led Zeppelin. It's like, how fucking cool is that? It's, I think it's great. Some 16-year-old kid knows about all this different stuff and loves right. all of it. You know? And he hasn't been, like, beat down with marketing and genre. Exactly. And he's free. And that's, that's when I see stuff like that, it's like, that's fucking cool, you know? That's the way it should be. Yeah. Like, all this stuff that's available to all of us, it doesn't have to be, have to listen to, for some, you know, 16-year-old kid listen to, what's hip now, Blink went, no, they're not even hip anymore. Um, I don't know, some <laughs> new band, but to say, like, you know, Led Zeppelin, Miles Davis, fucking Minutemen, Pink Floyd, all eras, whatever, yeah, it's great. Yeah. yeah. 
that's a good thing to end on. Thank you so much for talking with me, Steve. We should end on that, yeah, because uh, I realized that <laughs> I'm totally delirious. No, but you said a lot of good we things. We took our kids to the zoo this morning, and that was fucking awesome. We took uh, Daniel and Charlotte to the zoo, and Daniel was like all the... My son, he's really into he's he's really into books with animals in them. Yeah. <clears throat> and we took him to the zoo about a year ago, but he wasn't really getting it so much. But today, like all the animals that he loves in his books, he was seeing them for real. It was blowing his mind. He's like zebra, zebra. <laughs> he was like seeing a real zebra. He was freaking out. It was pretty fun. Oh, I gotta ask you a question. Well, the zebra, he's into the. You know, they're not just animals. There's types of animals. Yeah. And I want to ask you, what's your favorite guitar? My favorite guitar, absolutely, is actually a Fender Jazzmaster. I just got Tom Watson, a J. Mascus model Fender Jazzmaster. I've got a uh, my our, our tour. You met Chris Chandler, our road manager guy, yeah. town guy. He found me a Fender Twelve in Portland for eighteen hundred bucks. I'm shocked. Is it a puppet head? It's a. Yeah, it's a 66 Fender 12. Yeah, like a long headstock. Yeah, they call it the pump. That's what Nels played in the studio with me. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That. It's like, I usually see those for like, on eBay, like five or six grand if it's in any decent shape, like from 66, but he found one for 1800 bucks, so he's good. Wow, it's got two split pickups. Yep. Yeah. Beautiful. And what's your favorite amp? Favorite amp? You know, I don't know. I would probably... I'm not a Marshall guy. I would say probably like just the Fender Super Twins, like the badass Fender Super Twin reverb guys. Wow. Yeah, they're good sound. And what's your favorite box uh, pedal? Oh, man. I've got like 200 at this point. Um, Do you have a favorite? We have, to disc- we have to go into each category. <laughs> for fuzz, there's one. And for delay, there's one. For phaser, there's one. For flange. <laughs> For fuzz, I, it's really hard to top the. You ever come across a most right fuzz right? That is. So it's kind of older. Yeah, that's from '68 or '69. All right. Um, who? Yeah, I think I know the Jefferson Airplane used them. That doesn't matter, but I think MC5 had a couple of fuzz rights. Wow. Um, man, if you ever okay, look what if you ever if you ever see a most right fuzz right stomp box, get it, get it, man. Okay. It's fucking wicked fuzz, wicked. And what's your favorite keyboard? Oh, man. You're killing me with this. Well, which keyboard type? Synthesizer or Rhodes or Whirly? What are you talking about? Something where you you got a keyboard. You could say a piano, even. I would just say, like, an acoustic grand piano is my favorite. Okay. Uh, And favorite drums? Favorite drums, I would say probably late 60s Gretsch kit with the Ludwig snare. Okay. Bass, well, yeah. I don't actually have a decent bass. I've got a Univox badass, but it sucks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to work on that one then? <laughs> Looking at those, you know, your bass, like what the Gibson e- e- EB3. EB3. That's kind of hard to talk. I used, in the studio, I used my Thunderbird 2, 66, non reverse. Oh, Thunderbirds are nice, yeah. I, I can't play them live because the. Which is nice. You know about the non reverse ones? The couple of years they made them. Twisted the other way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they're two piece instead of three piece. Sweet. 
And uh, so I, in the studio, I can play a long scale because I'm sitting down. But gigs, i got to play the little ones because uh, less younger hands. you got to jump around, yeah. Yeah, but my hands get sore from the big ones standing up. So that's why I kind of went to the EB3. I didn't know that. Yeah, I went to littler basses because I was getting bad uh, pains. <laughs> <laughs> less younger, you know. Damn. Well, man, it's good talking to yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. And good success with the movie. Well, stay in touch. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I'll let, yeah, I'll let you know about all that stuff. Hopefully, I think they'll be done with it probably in October or something like that. So we'll see what happens. April 27, 2008, third hour of the Watt from Pedro show. First two hours there, we heard March 7th and April 21st, 2008, interviews over the phone with Stephen Droz of the Flame and Lips. Um, there was a lot of Watt there, okay? But that's the way Stephen wanted it. He wanted to be, like, kind of conducting interview with me. Anyway, he had some righteously good spiel. And I thank him hugely. Heroic. Very inspiring. Thank you, Mr. Stephen. Love you much. And now, here's part eight of Jack Flanders in Dreams of India. The things you are holding on to are all being washed away. Hmm. So true. What would a djinn want? I know they don't collect souls, but but this djinn wants something. Somehow I have to get it to tell me. You cannot. Oh? He will trick you. Yeah, well, I guess I have to trick it out of him. Ramchandar, what else can you tell us? The djinn visits her in her dreams. That is what is weakening her. She is strong in will, but her body has become weakened. I don't think I'd be very good at deceiving a djinn. Maybe you can find out what the pact was that she made and offer something to release it, to appease it. Yeah, if it can be appeased. Damn, this is frustrating. There are two dreadful enemies of man, Kama and Krodha. Who? Kama and Krodha. Desire and anger. You must develop complete control over them. They are your inner enemies. If you are defeated by your inner enemies, how can you conquer your external enemies? Oh, you've got me there. Once you keep these inner enemies under control, the other enemies can be defeated quite easily. So it is taught in the Bhagavad Gita. Kama and Kroda. Desire and anger. Sound like pretty tough cookies. Haji? Well, look, how can I get that djinn to talk to me? You know where it lives? Yes. I think I need your lantern again. I have it waiting. Here. Well, thanks. You're going up there again? In the middle of the night? Yes. I'll see you in the morning. Jeans are like tricks. A what? Tricksters. Ah. But a sense of humor can assist... That I know. Remember, karma and krodha. Desire and anger. 
no problem. Yeah, be careful. Yes, thanks. Remember. God, once he starts, he never stops. What? It is their world you enter. All is Maya. Illusion. But so is this world. True. True. It's a great help. Oh, it's a nice warm night to go for a stroll on the subcontinent. Good dogs. Well, that one sounds a bit sad. Oh, there it is. Odd, boxy shape. So dark, silent, waiting. through the rooms. And now, the gin room. It's the same as before. Drapes and carpets, pillows, same dust. Well, I guess I'll just sit and wait. Jeannie, you, Jack is back. <laughs> May as well get my laughs in while I can. It's nothing. No billowy cloud forming up in the ceiling. No wisps floating across the carpet. It's nothing. Hey, Jim. Hey. Hey, come on out and play. There's a path. It leads up a hill. Trees. There's that sad dog again. Is it the same? 
dreams again. They appear the same. If I wasn't already in here, I'd believe I just came in. And here's the gin room. I'm back. Sitting on the cushions, looking at the carpet. Now I'm standing up. I, I pick up the lantern. And I'm walking across the carpet. Do I really walk that funny? Oh, oh I'm walking as though I'm waiting. just walking in circles. Wide, slow circles around the carpet. Now it looks like I'm walking up the hill. I stop. I'm probably listening to that dog. I continue. And I see the palace. I enter through the rooms into the gin room and I see me sitting on the cushions. Now another me stands up, picks up the lantern and starts wading and both me's are walking around in circles on the carpet. that keep appearing, the more intricate the shadows become from, from all my lanterns. Unless I'm mistaken, I'm seeing my life. Layers and, and layers of shadows. Some sad, some sweet, some cruel, and some funny. Just shadows. Meanwhile, we're filling the palace up with jacks. Can I break this loop? Can I put myself into one of myself and, and see what that self is seeing? Oh, yeah. Now, here I am, waiting. Okay, now let's just hop out of me and catch a me about to enter the gin room and see me. Okay, now here I am, and there I am, and... The me's see all the other me's. But they're pretending that there's only one me. left me, I don't know which me was the observer. 
The observer must have been also walking in circles on the carpet, but, but thought he was merely standing back observing. I think I've lost myself in myself. Oh, I have done it this time. No, 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 Jack. Don't get angry. Look at all of those me's, engrossed in the patterns on the carpet, or profoundly interpreting the shadows on the walls. And they're all walking in circles. Doesn't say much for my life, does it? But it is funny. <laughs> okay, seriously, gang. How do I get back to the real me? Assuming there was a real me to begin with. beginning to wonder. Am I trapped in some metaphysical loop? Well, let's take one of these me's and, and just walk out of here. Oh, no. All the other me's are following me. I just want to be free of me. I want to be you. Yeah, the one who knows, the, the big me. <sighs> Meanwhile, all my little selves are following me in circles. Surrender. don't have a body. Did that gin trick me again? Or, or did I trick myself? No, 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 no. Cancel. Cancel. I don't want to get back into that again. Well...
from Pedro show started off the third hour there with Jack Flanders and Dreams Andia part eight three more parts to go Jack tripping out in India um, let's see what happened since last show last week it was at Brother Matt's he told us about his righteous trip Mexico with the whales and kayak and we had some guests over at the Love Grotto on the Pleasure Point. And in between, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, last night I played in Pedro with uh, Tom and Raul, the Missing Man. They did so good on their new stuff. All sparkly, but sounding good. God, they're beautiful men. When uh, Stooges Torn gets done, uh, I start uh, working on the third opera with him about <laughs> weird kind of mix, you know, between uh, those little drawings and the Hieronymus Bosch paintings and uh, my theory, or a theory I've kind of took a hankering for about maybe a coming-in-age thing where Dorothy, um, yeah, trying to figure out the weird dances that 
guys do. <sighs> Myself not accepted. Accepted. Accepted? Am I accepted? No. <laughs> accepted. I've not been accepted. <laughs> accepted. Oh, uh, whatever. Um, I should tell you, uh, after Jack Flanders, we heard uh, Super Inuit, something live by Holy Fuck, and then something else live by uh, Keiko Ueda, called Bird of the Universe, and then Mountain Mystery by Helios Creed. Now, uh, I've chosen that song to do for a Helios Creed tribute in the next year. And I have a, I dig him a mu- bunch. I have much respect. Got to do some gigs with him years ago when I was with Edward and Georgie. And then I saw him again a few years ago, not too long ago, a couple tours in, in Lawrence, Kansas. And uh, I know he lived for a long time in San Francisco, had that band Chrome. And uh, I'm very honored I was asked to come aboard. I hear some more music. You're calling us heathens with zero respect for the law. But we're only songwriters. Writing our songs and that's all We write what we live And we live what we write Is that wrong? If you think it is Mr. Music Executive Why don't you write your own song? And don't listen to mine They might run you crazy They might make you dwell on your feelings A moment too long We're making you rich And you were already lazy So just lay on your ass and get richer Or write your own song Mr. Purified Country Don't you know what the whole thing's about? Is your head up your ass so far That you can't pull it out? Getting smaller And everyone in it belongs And if you can't see that Mr. Music Executive Why don't you write your own song And don't listen to mine They might run you crazy They might make you dwell on your feelings a moment too long 
were making you rich And you were already lazy So just lay on your ass and get richer Or write your own song So just lay on your ass and get richer Or write your own song just can't live without alcohol you know what i'm saying mondays and tuesdays the days that normal people like you and me spend rehabilitating for the typical 72 hour binge that we put ourselves through every weekend monday monday night these monday motherfuckers just don't know how to slow down or regroup they may look at wednesday afternoon to catch a few z's before gearing up for the weekend but monday nights they know they can get the whole bar to themselves it's just me and them so I put up with a lot of bullshit, and that's what it is, just bullshit. Liquor is like truth serum. You know what these motherfuckers are really made of. Most nights, these motherfuckers are just in here talking shit, and all of it blends together, and you don't really hear any of it. Monday motherfuckers are up chucking their secrets left and right, like I'm, like I'm a motherfucker that they can confide in and shit. They have no idea that I'll turn around and tell all you people all this stuff. But here I am, and here we go. So this is the last idiot Monday motherfucker starts telling me how he cheated on his girlfriend and shit, like I'm sympathetic, like he wants me, like he wants me to have something to do with this shit, like I'm his guy or something. He's all proud and shit. Starts talking about all these different positions. He's cheating with his bitch and how do his girlfriend. This stuff his girlfriend won't try. Like I should be impressed by this stuff. Six tequila shots later, he's giving me his girlfriend's number. He wants me to call her and tell her what a great guy he is. Like, is this guy serious? Shit. Well, I should have some fun with this shit.
Well, what are they gonna say, man, when he's gone, huh? Cause he dies, when it dies, man, when it dies, he dies. What are they gonna say about him? What are they gonna say? He was a kind man, he was a wise man, he had plans, he had wisdom, bullshit, man. Am I gonna be the one that's gonna set him straight? Look at me wrong. And yet man seems to ignore the fact that on this very planet there are still people living in the Stone Age and practicing cannibalism. Primitive tribes isolated in ruthless and hostile in this jungle, which its inhabitants refer to as the Green Inferno, is only a few hours flying time from New York City. Well, it's a reminder of this that four brave young Americans went there to make a documentary on life in the jungle. Was it also to remind us, for instance, that before venturing into space, we should become more aware of What an excellent guy. We're going to take a little bit of a from Pedro's show that was the Green Inferno by Sunken Landscapes band out of Long Beach pretty trippy huh before that we had Soon by Japan Cakes I think uh, they used to be around and uh, have reformed Uh, before that was Monday Night Bartender by House of Cricket Meat Bass and then Write Your Own Song by Willie Nelson. Start your own band. Write your own book. Write your own poem. Paint your own picture. Write your own song. 
little credo. I've been coming up with a few credos, like uh, the least bother to the most folks. Mike Watt maybe is best tolerated in a tiny dose. <laughs> well, big uh, spiel with Watt and Stephen on the phone there, but not a lot on this show because uh, well, I wanted to give the whole thing. The man was very interesting. and I think if you follow his story, I mean, he got into music through his pop, but the way he took it and all the... Um, places he's been to get where he's at and like he was saying you know him and Wayne and the lips Michael uh, they can play whatever they want they're not stuck in that genre side crap you know and we need liberating folks like that to uh, give us confidence I think because uh, otherwise we're just marketing ploy tool cliche clown whatever, controlled by things other than the heart and the passion, you know? So, I wanted to have all of Stephen's spiel there. And, uh, it's trippy, um, him calling himself young with me. I know he is younger, but I don't know. I don't know. I always see him as contemporary. Maybe because of Brother Wayne. Because he definitely is. But, such an honor for me to have have Mr. Stephen take time out you know he's raising two uh, kids with his wife and he sounds like the happiest father uh, very much into the voyage of bringing on the next shift I have a lot of respect for him you know doing that sometimes I guess I do it with the songs uh, a little bit. Um, anyway, <laughs> God, it gets to me to thinking, you know, and my mind starts wandering about that. But at 50, I don't think it can pause too much. I have to be intent and uh, deal with what's uh, realistic, what's real, and maybe get out of my dream world, the dream picture. Uh, they seduce me or I let I just seduce myself with them sometimes but I need a little bit <laughs> to get uh, on with the the work the reality um, anyway we're getting at the end here of the uh, April 27, 2008 Watt from Pedro show keep your powder dry <laughs>